Welcome to the one within all to another episode of Interverse Podcast. I'm your host, Chance, wishing you happy holidays, whatever kind you might celebrate. Starting something of a tradition here as we've got the return of the one of a kind archaeo astronomer, John McHugh. A year ago, we had an excellent conversation where he presented his information about the stellar origins of the nativity of Jesus Christ and why there are some significant differences between the versions of that story in the Bible as the details are exposed in the stars. And today we're going to do the same thing. Uh, We're going to expand on that material. So if you enjoy this conversation, you can always go find the previous time John was on last Christmas. But the basis for this talk is regarding a topic called Lumashi, which is the system of revelation where ancient our astronomer priests would be able to read the scripture in the sky and derive details based on the names and the shape and the <laughs> symbolism laid up in those constellations and asterisms. And that would be where we are able to see the origin points of the incredible diverse amount of mythological systems around the world that yet still have these awesome similarities. So today, we're going to be looking into the arcane celestial precepts that expose the star of Bethlehem amid the stellar tableau of Jesus's nativity. So really digging into that particular aspect of the mythology. Now, if you guys are into this, you should definitely check out John's book, The Celestial Code of Scripture, the astral cipher underlying the miracle stories of the Bible and Quran. It's one of the best books in my library. Learned so much from John. He's one of the few that's able to take us back to the archaic Mesopotamian belief system and understand that conceptualization of the astral sky as the heavens and the constellations and planets as deities inhabiting this divine realm. By looking at the celestial tableau, we are able to understand the scenes that have been depicted as history (laughs) as having once taken place on Earth as the ancients believed if it was written in the stars, then it must be true down below as well. So we've got an awesome conversation today. It's really more of a presentation. John always brings some extremely detailed material. So 
buckle up. This is the deep end type of chat that you guys have come to know and love from Interverse. Welcome back to Interverse, John. It's good to have you. Thank you so much, Chance. It's wonderful to be back on Interverse. And uh, just I want to say hi to all your viewers and thank you so much for watching. And I'll just, I, I just, as someone who's raised, you know, devoutly Roman Catholic, I was taught by nuns and priests, kindergarten through 12th grade. And uh, I have always had a, a passion for this subject. And that passion actually ran into some real snares right around seventh grade. We had a sister, Regina, my seventh grade nun in religion said, okay, I want you, she wanted us to really understand every word of Jesus' message. So she made us read these stories, the miracle stories, one after the other. So when you read the uh, nativity story, the birth of Jesus in Matthew's gospel, and then in Luke's gospel, they're absolutely irreconcilable. They are not, you, you cannot join them together. They don't fit. And I remember saying, I had so many questions for her and she was giving me answers that really weren't working. So I've kind of carried that cognitive dissonance into my adulthood. And that's where all this research is, is stemmed, stemming from. Uh, just the difference in the details, pr profound differences in the details. And I hope I can share them with you. And I, I just want to let you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to be self-aggrandizing here, but I'm pretty sure I can tell you what the star Bethlehem was and where to find it in the night sky. And uh, so having said that, uh, why do, let's just have fun with it and maybe we just go on and uh, start talking about it. Well, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. But I do want to make a little point here, too, that that crisis of faith you describe as a youth, what I think many leaders of the church might be afraid of is the examination of the details with too much scrutiny. However, I think you and I would agree that learning where this stuff comes from and the celestial origins of mythology and religion has actually brought me, and I think you might agree, it's brought me closer to spirit. It's brought me closer to the concept of God and to the clockwork nature of this creation. I mean, there's a lot I could say about that, but kind of dropping the superstitious aspect and looking at just the incredible synchronistic way that everything fits together and that the story of nature, the order through which nature builds and operates in the sense of the seasons and the cycles, how that archetypal pattern establishes itself in everything that is created either by nature by god or by human beings so learning these things in a deeper level with that that healthy level of skepticism as well on the mythological aspect on the historical aspect i think it brings us closer to truth <laughs> because yeah. really and to really the the greatest religion is truth yeah and there's you know there's a, a whole pagan aspect to Jesus nativity well Christianity in general and Judaism in general but uh it really comes out at the nativity stories and i think it is connected to a sacred you know really sacred a sacred calendar that we're entering a really sacred time of the year uh and I, so i i can feel very connected to especially native american uh 
I, I don't like the word paganism, but it's the only word that comes to mind, polytheism maybe, um, of the Provo Indians, because it syncretizes very easily with, with my own Catholicism. In fact, most of the Pueblo Indians are Catholic, you know, uh, and so it's you know, they had no problem like, oh, the the Archangel Michael's a he's a warrior. Well, we got one of them, you know what I mean? So oh, the you guys revere the cross. We got that. Like yeah, how many native tribes had the cross? All, like yeah. all of them? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So you get this syncretism going on, and uh it, it's really I find it quite frankly very beautiful rather than um rather than discordant, you know, I, I think it brings people closer together to know that, you know, when you worship Jesus, you're also worshiping a sacred moment where the year is reborn. And so uh, anyway, we can get into that as we go forward tonight. Yeah, I know you got a lot to present to us, so you can go ahead and pop your screen share. Yeah. Up. I mean, Catholicism as paganism. It's all a matter of semantics. Well, you yeah. call it saints, but there's 10,000 saints and each of them rule yeah. over a different aspect of life. <laughs> so that sounds a lot like polytheism to me. Yeah. And it's funny you say that because we just had, uh, you, you know, I, I'm here in Utah and 80 percent of the Catholics in Utah I'm, I'm in Salt Lake, are uh, first language Spanish speakers. So it's a real big celebration. The Virgin of Guadalupe, uh, who's the patron saint of the Americas in the Catholic Church, and her uh, feast day was just back on December 12th. But again, it's connected to you know a lot of Aztec pagan belief systems about a sacred calendar, and it's connected to that. It, you got an image of the right out of the book of revelation channel tw ch chapter 12 so anyway um so i i just threw this title up there feel free to do whatever you want with it but rediscovering the star of bethlehem amid the stellar tableau of jesus nativity so the idea of rediscovering the star of bethlehem that's all really exciting right but then you realize there's a picture of the whole story both of them both of the incongruous stories described by Matthew and Luke, there's actually a picture of it in a certain region of the night sky that includes Virgo, Leo, and um, Cancer. So, uh, and I love this picture because this is when, when Matthew talks about uh, Magi, astrologers, leaving and going to King Herod, they would have been working underneath in the court of a of a of a of royalty, so they would have had a gigantic entourage. There wouldn't have just been three guys walking around with gold, frankincense, and myrrh. They would get, they would have get, you know, attacked on on the trade routes and killed, and all their things would have been stolen. They would have had a whole entourage, and if you would have tried to mess with them, you would get messed up bad. Um, so I love this picture. It's from one of their. I mean, it's like a book from like 1913 or something like that. But it really gives you an idea of what it looked like from Matthew's writings. This is what he was describing. So um, I'm just trying to I'm trying to get my screens to go. There we go. Monkfish has to, you know, makes me try to plug the book. So it's the, it's from plug it. it's a great book. People should check this out. I mean, my audience is really into astrotheology. 
this book is a very unique set of research on astrotheology that takes the picture back further than most people are able to to do in you know what what is typically talked about or presented online so i i really appreciate this book i will <laughs> be singing its praises forever when's the next oh, thank one thank you thank you and so the thing that's interesting is i try to start each chapter from where i first encountered it as a child so when i'm doing this we're like we're, we're now presenting like i'm all excited like i remember how excited i was about the story of the nativity when i was eight and I still have that same passion and I'm 59. You know what I mean? So so it, it's a it's a really fun feeling. It's a it's a really delightful feeling. So um so it's based on chapter 12 of the Celestial Code of Scripture, uh, the stellar tableau of Jesus' Nativity. And here's one of the things that I'm proud about. So almost every um chapter in the Celestial Code of Scripture uh was past peer review in a scholarly journal, except for the nativity story. That's the only one that was standing on its own, and I had never passed peer review. And I just got an article by the same title. It'll be published in the February edition of the European Journal of Science and Theology. So, so now it's got a scholarly base, and I can breathe a sigh of relief and say, yes, you can look at the footnotes if you think I'm making this stuff up, and you can look it up yourself. So Star of Bethlehem, it's written in Matthew chapter 2, uh, verses 1 through 12. You've, if you've been raised as a Christian, you've read it 50 times already. You've heard homilies on it. You've heard uh, impassioned uh, exegesis by your pastor on this kind of stuff. It's one of the most popular religious stories of all time, uh, if not the greatest astrological mystery of all time astronomical. I'm going to use the term astronomy and astrology interchangeable because the two terms were interchangeable until about the fifth or sixth century AD. There was really no, if you said the word astronomy and astrology, they meant the same thing. Again, love that picture. That's what the Magi would have looked like if they were traveling to Jerusalem. They would have had sentinels to defend them. They're carrying gold, frankincense, and myrrh. They're representing some kind of, uh, you know, regal court. They would have been unmistakable. So one of the greatest uh, Christian scholars of all time is William F. Albright. He really summarized it so perfectly, saying uh, in, in, on his, uh, his, uh, Exegesis on the book of Matthew, he writes, the historicity of the narrative not, is not so easily elucidated, and commentators have ranged from dismissing the episode as a, an entire astronomical myth on the one hand, to attempting, on the other hand, to pinpoint the exact comet or planetary conjunction, which first appeared in the assumed year of the birth of Jesus, which would have been circa 9 to 4 BC. You've already read article after article about Saturn and Jupiter conjunctions, the idea that it could have in later times been a comet. Uh, I think Johann, Johannes Kepler was the one that first uh, sent that idea out there. Uh, the idea now that it might have been a supernova. And now also the idea that the story is entirely mythical and devoid of any historicity at all. I just want to say one thing about the Saturn-Jupiter conjunctions. I'm going off dead reckoning here, but when I was in grad school and I was 
you know, translating ancient languages and trying for grades and stuff like that. Um, came across across a book by the Islamic astrologer Mashallah, and he's writing about the ninth century. He's living in Iraq, modern day Iraq, and he's talking about he has an, he has the nativity of Jesus, and it's based on these Saturn Jupiter conjunctions. Um, uh, in various uh, zodiacal constellations. And they cycle through. And when they make a cycle through, it's called great year astrology. And so um, so anyway, these Saturn-Jupiter conjunctions were very important to astrologers. There's been tomes written on this. And it's it really starts to emerge much later than the story of Jesus. So there's, again, almost every article you read about the nativity in the last 50 years is going to talk about those Saturn-Jupiter conjunctions. That's nothing new. What I'm presenting to you tonight is new. This is really new stuff. So um, that anyway, keep this in the back of your mind as we go forward. Um, so uh, you can see in this uh Help me out with if I mispronounce the Italian here. The Scrivegni Chapel from the early 14th century in Italy. It shows a comet as the celestial body that represented the star of Bethlehem. You see other images where the star's light is shining down on the baby. There's the wise man uh, presenting gold, frankincense, and myrrh to the uh, the Christ child. Matthew 2, verses 1 and 2, writes that astrologer Peter, in Greek it's Magoi, from the east, arrived in Jerusalem and met with King Herod and his retinue, and they were stating, where is the one born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. Uh, Matthew, uh, verse 4, tells us, having assembled all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired from them where the Christ is being born. Again, I'm translating this literally right out of the Greek. So so if it sounds clunky, it's because I'm trying to give you a word-for-word -word translation, so there's no mistake about what it says. Um, Matthew, uh, verse 7, tells us, uh, you, you can see that he's... The implication is they're using an ephemeris, right? Herod secretly having called the Magi ascertained from them the time of the appearance of the star. The only way to find that is through an ephemeris, which is a, it's a rising and setting time of stars. This is how calendars were kept in the and ancient So that's world. like a book, right? Ephemeris is like a yeah. book of tables. Yep. It's just table after table after table. And this is how you built your calendar. Um, so it assumes that they're using one of those to find out when this star is written. So it's not a secret. Every Somebody who has has some kind of acumen can figure out what this star is. And they did. The, uh, the uh, you know, the, the scribes and uh, uh, grammarians of uh, Herod did figure it out. So we know they're Magoi. They're, it's the plural form of magus. It's where we get the word magician. It's where we get the word magic. Uh, originally, I think it, it stems to the 6th century BC. It's a Persian priest of, with occult skills, especially dream interpretation, also astrology skills. But by the 1st century, it had been muddled with the idea of a Babylonian astronomer astrologer. 
And it probably comes from the idea from the Babylonian enslavement, uh, which dates to, you know, the, the late or maybe the early 6th century B.C. Remember Daniel, who's a Jewish scholar and three of his countrymen. Daniel becomes the supervisor of all of the Babylonian magicians uh, and included including the astrologers. So that Babylonian astrological wisdom probably uh, entered into Judaism at that time and was preserved and transmitted probably into the time of, you know, Matthew and Luke's writings. So the textual details that there are some textual details that you should be thinking about, that your viewers should be thinking about, they should know about, and they shed some light on the star's historicity. I just want to point them out. I'm not saying there isn't a celestial event, but I'm saying it's discernible. It's not this miraculous thing that everyone would have would have observed, because if they did, they would have written it down. And the only one who wrote it down is Matthew. So Matthew's unequivocal. He uses the term aster which is a star, he says, uh, it literally means in the east, um, and that this star signals the birth of a king or the anointed one, the Christ, right, the Christos. That's a Babylonian star, Alice, right there. Um, so there are Christian scholars who say that anti Anatoli in the east if you were, you could also translate it at the rising. Anatoly tends to get translated. It means rising, but because of that, because celestial bodies rise in the east, like the sun, uh, like the stars, that when you said uh, you could say in the east or at the rising, it doesn't say at its rising. Alta, the Greek word uh, for its doesn't show up. And uh, some Christian scholars say that that's a copyist error. The problem I have with that is there's no extant text that that use at its rising. It literally says in the East. And I'm going to give you a reason. That, that's really clumsy Greek. And I'm going to give you a reason why it's clumsy Greek later in our you know discussion tonight. But But I just want you to know that in the East is not a typical term phraseology uh, for someone who's as skilled at writing in Greek as Matthew. Here's the other piece. So when Matthew's serious, when he thinks something is unequivocal history, he uses uh, the fulfillment formula. In Greek, it's hina plerothe. It's hina plerothe. So and it's so that it might be fulfilled. He he uses it when the angel of the Lord is talking to Joseph. He's literally says to Joseph, she will, you know, he's saying, hey, comes to him in a dream. He says, you will bear your she will bear a son. Your wife's going to bear a son and you will call the name of him Jesus, for he will save the people of him from their sins. Now, this all occurred that might be fulfilled. The thing spoken by the Lord through the prophet. And again, he doesn't use the fulfillment uh, formula when he's talking about this star. And when he means business, he uses it. He uses it like seven times in his gospel. Um, 
So after leaving King Herod, Matthew 2, 9 tells us, And behold, the star which they saw in the east went before them until having come, it stood over where the child was. Matthew 2, 11 tells us, And coming into the house, so it's unequivocal, they're showing up at baby Jesus' house. They saw the child with Mary, the mother of him, and falling down, they worshipped him, and having opened their treasures of them, they offered to him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So the Christmas star's motion elicits a few, they really cause some trouble. They give you some heartburn. And the reason they give you some heartburn is because uh, you're talking about a star that's coming, so it's observed by Babylonian astrologers in somewhere in Babylonia, and they follow this star and follow it on a 900-mile journey to Jerusalem. Then all of a sudden, the star stops over the house of baby Jesus. Excuse me. It leads them to uh, Herod in Jerusalem. And then it hangs a left and goes another six miles and positions itself over the house of baby Jesus. I like that art, that artist uh, reconstruction of the event right there, because that's what you're you're kind of trying implying that this star is kind of acting like a drone with a spotlight shining down its light. And in the era when the uh, calendar was reckoned by court authorized astronomers, there's no way they would have missed such a star. And no one else wrote about it except for Matthew. Um, the, the lack of other of extra biblical evidence for this star is the big problem here. So, again, putting it on a map. Astrologers observe this star in Babylonia. They follow it for 900 miles to Jerusalem. They talk to Herod. Then the star moves six miles south to Bethlehem, positions itself over baby Jesus' house in Bethlehem. And that's where all the evidence occurs to put it where, where the astrologers show up at the house of baby Jesus. To give you an idea how long that journey would have taken, it, it took... Uh, the exiles, so um, Jews that were uh, exiled to Babylonia in Ezra, uh, the book of Ezra, uh, chapter 7, verse 9, that journey took four months, but they've got elderly and chi and children uh, in, their, uh, in, the, in the group. And eminent astrologers and their entourage would have taken a far shorter duration, duration probably like three months. I'm guessing it would have took them about three months. There would have been no, you wouldn't have to slow down for elderly or children. So that's what people were envisioning the star of Bethlehem. It's a supernatural star. It's something that would have been a one-of-a-kind event. And again, why are not other people writing this down? Why aren't the Canaanites writing it down? Why aren't Greeks writing it down? You know, why aren't the Romans writing it down? It's just Matthew. The biggest impediment to the historicity of Matthew's Christmas star, ironically, it comes from Luke. He, he tells an entirely different story of Jesus' birth. He tells us, never even mentions a star of astrologers. He tells us that uh, Jesus' parents were called by an emperor's edict to a census in Bethlehem. And the mass influx of registrants uh, had caused the lodgings in the vicinity of Bethlehem to become full, forcing Joseph to take his pregnant virgin wife to the stables located below or adjacent to the customer's room. Probably they went to a caravanserai. It's a caravan station. 
it's where caravans stopped so that they could rest and feed their animals, give them drink. And this is a medieval version. This would have been an Islamic caravanserai. This is what Jesus gave. This is a first cent. This is what a first century caravanserai in Christ's time would have looked like. So it's almost like a hostel. Remember, pack animals are the means of transportation. So you had to have these caravan stations. They were really uh, almost like dormitories where you would have had bedding, where you could lay down. You laid uh, the the guests, the human guests actually stayed on a on a wooded floor that you could probably see through the beams. And you kept your animals underneath in pens or chained up to postings. Uh, and there would have been mangers all, all around there. It would have been, you would have been, so Mary, there's no room for her to, to bed because all of the, the lodgings are taken, all of the, basically the cells or the rooms are taken. She's got to go down and use a makeshift manger as her crib. It would have been incredibly humble. And that's what it looked like. And what you see there in that picture, it's on the cover of uh, The Birth of the Messiah by Raymond E. Brown, who's probably one of the greatest Christian scholars of all time. I put a little orange arrow there. What you see is Mary swaddling the baby Jesus right there. This is where Jesus was given birth, according to Luke. Again, incredibly humble. You would not want to have to give birth in such a a dirty and uh, just really incredibly dirty environment. So so she bore her firstborn son. She wrapped him in claws and laid him in a manger. We call wrapped him in claws. We call that swaddled. Luke 2, uh, verses 9 through 12, you have an angel of the Lord shows up. He appears before shepherds and reiterates the definitive sign that would divulge the secret identity of the Christ child. And this will be to you the sign you will find an infant wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. A multitude of heavenly heavenly army shows up at this point. We call them the heavenly host, but it's actually a heavenly army. And uh, they refrain, uh, they sing a, a refrain of praise. Luke 2, verse 16, the shepherds found both Mary and Joseph and the infant lying in the manger. And they're trying to show you an image of this heavenly host there flying around. They have angels' wings in this depiction. The One of the greatest ironies of the nativity story is that you see creches even to this day. People put creches out on their front lawn with little light bulbs. I had one of those with the three-foot shepherds and Joseph and Mary and little baby Jesus lying in a manger little white light bulb for the star of Bethlehem. Um, But the only place that you're going to find Matthew's star and astrologers mingling with Luke's shepherds in manger is at the crash. They don't do that in the Gospels. Uh, So that that imagery I found really intriguing because most Christians today think they, they mashed them together into this story that we've built up in our heads that never shows up in the in the gospels so that's kind of the nature of of religiosity right it's right more 
the popular belief or what's in people's mind than what's actually written in the holy text. Yeah. And it, it, the thing that it allows you to extrapolate from all the information is that Matthew and Luke never knew each other and they were not aware of each other's writings or, or else they would have compared notes. Right. And here's the thing that's most intriguing. No one present during Jesus' adult ministry had attended his birth except for Mary and Joseph. And the discrepancies in the nativity stories make it really clear that they were not basing the nativity stories on the shared experiences of Jesus' parents. You could make the argument that Matthew is entirely true and Luke is fabricated, or that Luke is entirely true and Matthew is fabricated, but you cannot reconcile the two stories. Um, I want to just, again, this may be the greatest Christian scholar that has ever lived. This is Raymond Brown, definitely my favorite Christian scholar. Doesn't side, sidestep the, the hard issues, tells you when it's in, you know, irreconcilable. Uh, his control of the ancient languages is astonishing. It, it's, it, it's like when you're talking about, you know, you're talking about LeBron James, Michael Jordan, Larry Bird, the best that have ever lived. That's him. Um, so what he says is that all that means, in fact, is that we have no real knowledge that any or all of the infancy material came from a tradition for which there was a corroborating witness. That's a big admission. It means that the Christian stories, the, the Christian versions of Jesus' birth could be based on just pure verisimilitude rather than factual data. Um, and although they here's where things start to get really complex, and I think your viewers will really enjoy this. Um, when we think of the nativity stories, like, oh, well, they come first in the, in the Gospel of Matthew and first in the Gospel of Luke. Well, they are the latest additions to the Gospel of Matthew. They were appended last to the Gospel of Matthew and Luke. And they're both written probably in the mid-80s. Nobody's going to have a conniption if you say the mid-80s AD. Again, I'm basing almost all this data off of the best Christian scholars. The two best are Raymond E. Brown and uh, William F. Albright. If they've said it, it's worth reading and listening to. Uh, their command of the ancient languages is, and just the cultural milieu of Jesus' time is astonishing. So the two big questions that come up when you read the nativities is why did Matthew and Luke, Luke need to even write the story of Jesus' birth? Mark doesn't talk about his birth. John doesn't talk about his birth. And then the second question that is entailed to that how did Matthew and Luke come to con confidently report entirely different accounts of Jesus' birth as if they were based on eyewitness testimony? Something is allowing them to, to believe that they have a view. They've got a, a snapshot. They've got a picture, a tableau, a video of Jesus' birth. And it's inviolably true. I'll add in here that I think the earliest Christian writer whose works we have in their entirety is Justin. And if I'm not mistaken, he actually refers to the Sibyls as prophesying the birth of Jesus. And you look further into the Sibyls and there's all kinds of 
you know, prophecy in general is is star based. So if I'm not mistaken, the earliest or the oldest gospels that can be produced are even uh, more recent than that. So like, I don't know, somewhere 300, 400 AD. That that yeah. being said, it's like you, you really can't go and trace a, a gospel story back to some kind of eyewitness. It's they're they're much more recent than people might expect. Yeah, and there would have been, and people forget this, there would have been a long oral tradition as well. And so, I think Eusebius, the father of ecclesiastical history, talks about the therapeutes of Egypt and the College of Alexandria, the predating Christianity as having had the gospels in their entirety before the birth uh, of Christ. I have to really look into that. I I do I have not done a lot of research. I'm embarrassed to tell you. I have not done a lot of research on the early church fathers. Well, there's um, just so much to look at. You're you're doing yeah. <laughs> you're doing your thing yeah. over here. It's good stuff. Yeah. So and again, that's that's a whole I mean I mean just the foundation of the Christian church and why certain books were included and why some were omitted is that's three episodes. <laughs> you could go on and on. But the first question, why did Matthew and Luke need to report the story of Jesus' birth? Um, that's that's intriguing because we have evidence for that. Jews and pagans believed, at least in by the mid to late first century, Jews and pagans believed Jesus was illegitimate. So they they believed um, that that Mary had basically been an adulteress. So you see it in uh the Gospel of John, chapter 8, verse 21, which is written, you know, around between 90 and 110 A.D. So he says, you know, in in that passage, he says, you, the Jews, are doing the works of your father, the devil. And they respond to him. The representatives of the synagogue say, we've not been born of fornication. We have one father, God. And the implication being that Jesus was born of fornication. Uh, the pagan Celsus in 177 AD writes that it was Jesus who fabricated the story that he had been born of a virgin. In fact, however, his mother was a poor country woman who earned a living by spinning. She'd been driven out by her carpenter husband when she was convicted of adultery with a soldier named Panthera. And even uh, second century Jewish texts uh they read uh they refer to Jesus Jesus as Yeshu ben Pentera, Jesus the son of Pentera. Uh so you you have uh Jewish texts and pagan texts um you know aligning in the idea that Jesus was the product of fornication. And also connected to that in the in the eighties AD Judaism uh, levels a polemic against Jews that accepted Jesus as the Messiah. So you see it in John 9.22. I'm going to go to the, the second bullet point there. His, um, so uh, Jesus cures uh, a young man. Uh, he gives him his vision back. And they go to his parents and they say, his parents, uh, they said, hey, you know, did did Jesus really repair your child's sight and and cure him of blindness? And they and his parents said that because they were afraid of it. The, they said you can. He's of age. You can go ask him. 
And his parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that anyone who confessed Jesus to be the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. And there's an example of, you know, if you identify Jesus as the Christ, you will, in essence, in our terms today, you will get canceled. And at this time, a major synagogue prayer called the 18 Benedictions, Shemune Esrei, uh, was rephrased so that Jew, Jews who worshiped Jesus were branded as heretics, minim. And so again, you, you were not allowed, if you wanted to stay in the synagogue, you could not, no longer uh, identify Jesus as the Christ and be accepted in the synagogue. Uh, so I want to point out another little thing. You brought up that really interesting epithet jesus bar panther <laughs> there's so much in that but yeah. one thing that i feel that it links to amongst many threads that you can pull on there is the uh syncretism of jesus with dionysus or bacchus being mm -hmm. that bacchus or dionysus is consistently depicted with panthers and there's other links between them too i mean born of a virgin you have uh the monogram of Bacchus is identical to the IHS when transliterated. So oh, really? Bacchus, one of the uh, names for Bacchus would have been basically transliterated to English as Hughes. It'd be Upsilon uh, Ada, Ada Sigma, I think like okay. that. And that can transliterate to uh, basically IHS that we get later. Uh, I've talked about that before. I'm kind of running through it without notes in front of me, but tons of tons of other born of a virgin, December 25th, sons of God, uh, characters out there, Bacchus being a God of wine, Jesus turning water into wine. The list of syncretism goes on, but that Panther bit is uh, an interesting one for sure. Yeah, and Dionysus is equated in uh, some uh, celestial writers Celestial mythographers equated Dionysius with uh, Demuzi, which is Orion, uh, and sort of the it's the symbol of summer for Middle Eastern people. The constellation Orion, Demuzi, or Tammuz in Hebrew, I think. Uh, but anyway, uh, so Matthew and Luke, the reason they're writing the birth story of Jesus is they're trying to to preserve him as the Christ. They're trying, trying to create a genealogy that proves that Jesus was uh, of the lineage of David, which the Messiah had to, to be from David. Um, they had to establish Jesus's birth site in, as Bethlehem, uh, as fulfilled in the Old Testament prophecy of Micah. And with to assure uh, believers that Jesus himself was not illegitimate, they, um, I, I don't want to say created the story of the idea, but they somehow inferred or recorded that Jesus was impregnated, uh, uh, his mother Mary was impregnated as a virgin through the Holy Spirit. Um, and so, Numina Hagion. Uh, so that's what that was the purpose of the nativity narratives. That's why Mark and John don't have them. And that's why they're the latest appendage, appendages to Matthew and Luke's Gospels. So then if you get to the second part of that question, the first one we've, that's the reason. He's illegitimate. That's why they had to create a nativity story, a birth story. But how did Matthew and Luke come to confidently report entirely different accounts of Jesus' birth? 
And not only that, record them as if they're talking to an eyewitness. Like they're like writing it down like this is an eyewitness saw this event. Well, I'd like to suggest that they had a way to actually view ancient history. They could view uh, monumental scenes from history. And clue number one comes from Matthew's gospel. He tells us that Babylonian astrologer priests, the Magi, believed that the rising of a certain star signaled the birth of the Christ child. And clue two, Luke says that the Christ child's sign, his Samaion, is consist, it's going to consist of a swaddled child lying in a manger. That's really specific information. But the, the word he used for sign, Samaion, has a, it means sign, portent, omen, but it has a more nuanced meaning. It's a constellation serving as a sign. So, like, n- now you're on, n- now you're in my world. Like, you're in my, my wheelhouse right now. Cause I'm like, all right, I know where all this is coming from. So, so when you turn to Babylonian, Babylonian astronomical tablets, they refer to Regulus as Sheru. The word literally means king. But Cheru is a dialectical variation of Sheru with an E. It's child, baby, infant. In fact, when you read it, when you read about this, the word for child, it looks like king. You're like, oh, Sheru. You're like, wow, that's the word king. And you're like, but they're using it as the word for baby. And so people out there that might not be super knowledgeable about all the stars, Regulus is one of what is called the four royal stars, which when mapped out, they create the cross of the ecliptic. Yeah, and it's the, the diminutive term for king. Uh, regulus is, uh, it comes out of the Latin, it comes from rex, but it's the diminutive term for rex, the 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 word for king. It in essence literally means little king or baby king. I, I think I know why. <laughs> and we're going to be talking about that. But the, what's really in, 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 intriguing to me is in a few really late Babylonian kind of contemporaneous cuneiform uh, astrological texts, they use the Sumerian logogram Tor. And whenever you see a, a transliterated cuneiform word in capitals, it's a Sumerian word. It, it, it's called a Sumerian logogram. It's just a Sumerian word. It literally means baby really small child, infant. So they know that Sheru means king, and they know that Sheru means baby, infant. And I think that we'll see in a moment that that level of uh, wordplay is very special. Um, But not only that, these are all, by the way, pre-Christian texts. Greek pre-Christian texts referred to Virgo as a a Parthenos, a virgin. That's exactly how Mary is described in Matthew and Luke's gospel. Uh, When the angel is talking to her, one of them, it's the angel Gabriel. In in Matthew, it's an angel of the Lord. In Luke, it's the angel Gabriel. And they refer to her as a a Parthenos, a virgin. And they also refer to uh, Messiah. It's a, a fuzzy star in Cancer. Cancer is really dim. If you live anywhere near a city, you'll never see Cancer. If you go out in the country, you can see Cancer pretty clearly, and you'll see a fuzzy little star. It's a Messier object. It's like a, it's like a star cluster, and uh, it's they call it M44. Astronomers refer to it as M44. It's a uh, Fatne. 
fattenate just means manger. It means feeding trough. And so these stars form a tableau in the night sky. So you got a virgin, you got an infant king, and you got a manger, and that's who's getting born in Matthew and Luke's version of Jesus' birth. And I want to go a little further. This is where things get just phantasmagoric. So if you're if you're someone like me that gets all excited about this stuff, um, so the Western stars of Virgo. Um, they don't identify exactly which ones, but some of the Western stars join up with Leo's tail and Coma Berenices to form the pregnancy goddess that goes by several names. One is Eru with a short E, which just means date frond, which is why she's holding a date frond in her hand. Another one is Eru, long E. You hold the the e, the, the U uh, long at the end. It's an ultra heavy vowel. It literally means in Babylonian to be pregnant. And there's another one called Erua, which is more you could translate in, into Sumerian as just, you know, just a, the pregnancy goddess with a, an A at the end of her name. When I hear um, that, when I hear the phonetics of Eru, I'm thinking of other versions of the savior in Trinity symbolism, Eros being one of the first ones, a.k.a. Cupid. Cupid is another prototype of a, a Jesus figure. Right. And well, that's really interesting. And because ironically, the only thing I only language I don't mess around with very much is Latin. But it'd be interesting to go in all of the divine childbirths in Latin. Um, but this one is really clear cut. Iru literally means to be pregnant. So you have the Western stars of the Virgin being referred to as a pregnant virgin. So you have the words pregnant and virgin, and you have a child king and you have a manger. So you're like, well, wait a minute. That's the story of Jesus's birth right there, right? Um, and I just try to plot it down for you so you can see it in one direct tableau. And I'm willing to bet, well, we'll go into a little more that this became the basis for Matthew and Luke's, uh, it came the template of Matthew and Luke's birth story, and we'll go into it a little more. So could be there be an astronomical solution to Jesus' dissimilar uh, nativity stories? Again, well, they're Let's also point out that the Leo part, Leo could be the panther, <laughs> you know, son of yeah. panther, bar panther. Yeah. yeah, yes, it could. Yeah, and so... Again, yeah, you have this feline, this, you know, that has is also in the stars. And uh, so so and they know that and I'll go into reasons why they know this stuff. So I'm pretty sure there's an astronomical solution, a simple one that has been overlooked for 2000 years. So I'm going to say that Jesus' irreconcilable birth stories are based on two arcane astronomical precepts. You could call them tenets circulating in scholarly enclaves accessible to Matthew and Luke in Syria. So Syria is probably where Matthew and Luke write their gospel. And the Babylonian astrological curriculum is definitely circulating in Syria into the third century AD. In fact, pagan uh, paganism and Mesopotamian paganism are, you know, they're commingling with Christianity into the third century AD, if not later. 
And there's a lot of evidence for that. I'm not going to go into that. That's another, that's like its own episode. But um, so the Greeks have a term for it, uh, how they view the constellation. It's called catasterismos. The os at the end, it's catasterism. The os is just a case ending. Um, it just means placing amongst the stars the belief that pictures in the constellations depicted monumental earthly events that had been transferred onto the starry sphere. It's a method of history verification. If you wanted to know if something actually happened in the uh, in the past, you could just look for a picture of it in the constellations. Another one, the other um, tenet that's floating around in Syria at, at the time the gospel authors were writing is Lamashi or constellation writing. It's the tenet that wordplay in the constellations' oldest cuneiform titles imparted. It, it imparted inviolable truth uh, regarding the nature of the universe. So if you found a pun, if you found what we would call a synonym, a homonym, or double entendre, you would assume that was a form of uh, a, a revelation directly from the gods to you. And you would have been the humble scholar that has been chosen to reveal this exegesis to just the scholars who were able to unravel these mysteries, okay? So, so Matthew and Luke never says, hey, I know Lamashi writing. They say, oh, I know there's a picture of Jesus' birth in the stars. They don't go into detail. They intimate that they're using the stars, but they never say, hey, I'm looking at a picture in the stars to find out how Jesus was born. So catasterism, placing monks the stars, nobody's going to lose any sleep over that. The 48 ancient constellations, you know, Chance, when you look up at the stars, uh, I'm just going to look at Pegasus there, you know, see Pegasus. And Pegasus born from, you see Perseus in the middle to the right, carrying the severed head of Medusa. Well, when Perseus cut off Medusa's head, Pegasus sprang forth. This, the constellations show his birth right there in the stars. Uh, later, um, he rescues Andromeda. She's got her arms out. She's been tethered to a rock. She's being sacrificed to the sea serpent, Ketis, who's going to devour her. And it was Perseus who swooped down, stabbed Ketis to death, rescued Andromeda, and eventually married her. So, I mean, th these are just examples of catasterisms right there in the stars, right? Pictures in the stars that prove that scenes from history uh, they prove scenes from history. The, the, the most uh, noticeable and conspicuous catastrophism is the death of Orion. Remember, uh, Hesiod in 700 BC says that Orion was killed by a giant scorpion uh, because he was a great hunter and he wanted to kill all the animals that lived on Earth. And as punishment, the Earth goddess Gaia sends up a scorpion that tracks him down and stings him dead. This chase scene is depicted in the stars whenever Orion sets on the western horizon, Scorpius is rising in the east. This story gets recorded as a historic event. Now today we'd say, well, that didn't happen. How can you put up a giant scorpion who runs down and chases a guy down and stings him dead? Well, to the Greeks, it, you could prove, and the Romans, you could prove that it was true because there's a picture of the chase scene in the stars. Um, another one is Orion can walk on water. He said, says it's 700 years before Jesus. 
Um, I talk about this in the Celestial Code of Scripture. There's a picture of Orion walking on water in the stars. When you look at his cuneiform title, it renders Son of God in Christ, which is probably how the walk on water, Orion's ability to walk on water was ascribed to Jesus 700 years later. Um, but other pieces of information that kind of stand out. So, you know, Luke, he's an indigenous pagan Semitic physician. He's uh, from Antioch, Syria. It tells us in Colossians uh, 4, chapter 4, verse 14. He writes Acts of the Apostles. Um, uh, he, he, I don't want to say he makes up the speeches that he attributes the the uh that he attributes to Saint Paul, but he writes the speeches and he attributes them to Saint Paul. In Acts 17:28, Paul quotes from the Star Atlas phenomena in a speech. Uh so when when uh when Luke is quote saying that Paul quoted the Star Atlas phenomena in Acts 17:28. It's he himself who's quoting from phenomena. And the reason that that's so intriguing is the phenomena refers to the manger, the fatine, that's uh, in cancer as a meteorological sign. It's a weather sign. And uh, later, Luke 2.12, he's using this same manger as a sign of the Christ child. So it's very likely that, you know, it's evidence that you know, Luke is, he's got strong astronomical, astrological abilities, real skills, and that he knew that, that the ancient astronomers knew that the manger was a real sign to humans. So Matthew places Magi, astrologer placed in ba Babylonia, everybody, all of the, the great Christian scholars and Near Eastern scholars, they pretty much all agree that the that the astrologers that show up at Jesus' birth are from Babylonia. So Luke is an indigenous, he's Semitic, he's a pagan. He's what we would call a, probably a Canaanite, a Hellenized Canaanite. Um, and the reason that his profession as a physician is so interesting is because physicians are often skilled in astrology in Babylonia. They, they, uh, they're one of the subheadings they they call them umanu, which means a scholar or a magician or a sorcerer. And they are often physicians and astrologers. They have all the they can they can soothe angered gods. They have all these the reason it would have been important is if you were a physician, you could diagnose an illness and then you could uh make an astrological prediction that would allow the person to heal their illness. That's part of the reasons why they were so, um, they often had this dual skill. So Matthew's reference to Babylonian astrologers implies a familiarity with esoteric astrological precepts upon which these uh, prognostications were based. And Babylonian astrologers, in their own writing, they call the celestial sky, Shittir Shemeh, Shittir Barumeh, Shittir Shemami. Uh, they all refer to something like heavenly writing, writing of the stars, celestial writing. Heavenly writing is probably the best translation. 
And a Babylonian astrologer is a Tufshara. It's literally a writer. It's an, it's an author. And so Babylonian astrologers are authors. It implied the ability to read, and their job was to read the heavenly writing, the, the, literally the writing of the sky, uh, for encrypted messages that would inform the ruling monarch. Many, in many cases, those messages are going to come in the form of puns. And this is where it gets really intriguing. Lamashi writing is a kind of constellation writing. It's using the constellation titles and images to inform and enlighten you. Uh, the messages usually come in the form of, we would, the fancy word in English is polysemy. It means multiple meetings and a, a word or a phrase. Uh, but it really refers to wordplay, punning, or double entendre. If there's a dual meaning in a name that you, you now have been, and you see it as an astrologer, you've been enlightened and you know a truth about a divinity that didn't exist before. That makes the ability to read these star atlases and the polysemy in the constellations uh, a real gift. I'll Let me give an example. You know, because this is what we do over here all the time on this channel is looking for the dual meanings and seeing if that tells us something. So you were just a little bit ago talking about Paul, yeah. whose whose name was originally Saul. Well, Saul is Sol. That's the sun. <laughs> Sol Invictus. Interesting. And yeah. P and B, especially in the ancient world, P and B are very interchangeable. Okay. So Paul could be Baal, which is all bail right the yeah. the persian the persian sacred language at one point has been referred to as Pali. that's the same as the or bali that's the same oh, as what that's the same as what the buddhist sacred language or the jainism uh scriptures are based in the Pali canon you know and you brought up the uh <laughs> what luke was referred to as a amanu right that's one of the words yeah for the, manu, yeah Amanu. Yeah. And so Manu is the son of the sun and the, the son of Surya, son of God in the Hindu mythology. The incarnations of Manu are repeated throughout history. So there's multiple Manus and the, you know, he creates the, or he's the teacher of the, the sages in, in the Hindu system and in, in their ancient uh, precepts. You go and that would even fit, that would even fit the meaning. It exactly, it exactly yeah. fits the meaning. And yeah. even uh, throughout the world, throughout different parts of the archaic world, there are lawgiver kings or rulers who have a, a name with that title that sounds just like that Manu or Manus or Minos or, you know, it goes on and on. But there's there's tons of them from every corner of the world. Yeah. And, you know, we think of... You know, I, Again, he's kind of obsolete now, but if you liked Jay Leno's humor back from 15 years ago, he often used wordplay. That was all of his jokes were connected to wordplay. I I, uh, I heard a joke at Halloween I thought was an example of wordplay. So so why don't people uh, eat ghosts because they taste like sheet? You know. So, so there's <laughs> an example one. of it. We use it for humor today, but 
But in the ancient world, it was a, it was a form of exegesis. It was a form of epiphany, revelation. If you found a wordplay, a secondary meaning in someone's name, you had found something profound about that person's future. And if they weren't doing what that uh, epiphany stated, well, they might want to get to it because that's their purpose in life. That's what they were supposed to do. Uh, so, uh, well, Jesus, you know, his name, Yeshua, it means uh, he saves or he will save. He will rescue or he will save his people. It's embedded in his name. He's going to be the savior. He's going to be one that saves uh, his people uh, from from enslavement, right? So you go into this, the, the thing where it really shows up is this, uh, you know, the word plays really showing up in, uh, remember I talked about those umanu? Well, they use the term umatnitsirti, hidden words. And then they also attach it to some variation of parishtu shaili, which are the secrets of the gods. Um, Nitsirtis, uh, you know, tr- secrets, you know, um, it, they all it also means treasures. <laughs> it's it's the word for the coffers that the, the three wise men opened where they opened their coffers of, you know, they get translated as like trunks or, you know, their gifts. But it's really treasures. It's the same word that means uh, yeah, hidden secrets, treasures. Anything when I hear Amat Nitsirti, I hear Amat Nitsirti. I also hear kind of like <laughs> hiding in that phrase Amat which is the hidden one of the Egyptian pantheon. Yeah. Again, there could be, again, there could be far, I would be surprised if there wasn't more wordplay encrypted on this. And I'm not even noticing it because I don't know hieroglyphics. I've had to only had to look up a hieroglyphic title once in my life, you know? Um, So anyway, this, you know, when scholars criticize me, it can't be because I'm making this up. They said we see hidden words as the secrets of the gods. I didn't infer that. They've actually said it, said it explicitly. And then right after they say it, when they find a pun, then they attach on some kind of chastisement or admonition. You know, this is a secret of the gods. The uninitiated shall not see it. You can only share it with other astrologers or other Umanu, other scholars who have our expertise. You cannot share it with the common folk. They can't handle this. Um, So, again, uh, you know, take it for what it is. This was a this was a closed society, enclaves of scholars who were getting together and sharing their wisdom with each other. Often, well, not often, they were all multilingual. They knew Greek, they knew Cuneiform, and if you knew Cuneiform, you knew Sumerian and Akkadian. Akkadian is Babylonian and Syrian. You probably knew Hebrew, you probably knew Aramaic, may have known hieroglyphics, just polyglots. Just really, when I read their writings, man, I just think, best in the world. And you read the best in the world, you know, the best scholars on earth, you know, so... So, um, so yeah, we think of puns. Again, I'm going to Scott, quote Scott Nogle here. Scott Nogle is one of the great, um, he is one of the great scholars of punning in the ancient world. 
He says, we tend to think of puns as a literary device, a sign of humor, rhetoric. In antiquity, puns were not used in that way because the conception of words was so different. Writing was considered of divine origin. Puns provided diviners with interpretive strategies. And when he says diviners, he means astrologers, you know, the standard diviners, lamentation chanters, the physicians. Perhaps because written word evolved from pictographs in Mesopotamia, words were considered the embodiment or the object or idea they represented. When we read the word dog and know that refers to a dog, ancient Mesopotamians would have read the word dog as a dog in concentrated form. As a result, individual words contain the power of essence, in this case, the essence of a dog. There was a whole envelope of information that came from every cuneiform sign or part of a sign. You'll see why that last sentence is important. We use an alphabetic script now. I, I mean, you can be six years old, you memorize the alphabet, you learn the signs, and then in first grade, you're reading a six-year-old. Cuneiform's not that way. It took three years to master this art. And it's because it's 600 signs, they're syllabic. They're dumbfoundingly confusing. Sorry. I'll just add, too, that modern, I don't know, quantum science, <laughs> for, for for whatever that's worth, I, I won't make a value judgment on that branch. But there's a lot out there in research that is asserting essentially that information and energy have this relationship to each other where one kind of becomes the other and vice versa. So what the ancients are saying about a, a word or a pictogram containing the essence of what it is, it, it is uh, representative of there, you know, we may come to a point where there's some sort of concrete mechanism, mechanism of understanding that that is actually true. Yeah. And well, I, I even, I, I I totally agree with that. I just think when you, I think the fancy word among psychologists, cathect something and make it part of yourself, whether it be an idea, even maybe it is an idea. Like when, when you ask me, you know, who are you? Part of my identity is that I'm just Roman Catholic. I, I My language to the sacred is Roman Catholicism. So I understand things through that lens, but I try to broaden off of that lens and not just be Roman Catholic. You know what I'm saying? So, so yeah, there's a, there's a piece that can come by looking just at a certain image. Well, you're changing your whole physiology. Well, why the heck's that happening? What's that about? When I stare at the Virgin of Guadalupe and I pray to the Virgin of Guadalupe, why does my whole body relax? Why am I totally at peace? Can't explain it. And no physicist can either. No, I don't know. No, there's there there's something to that, man. <laughs> Whatever your way to it is, even if it's a more like less some more or less symbolic, there's power in invocation of of a sort, and that's that's a, a bigger mystery, I think. But it legitimizes. <laughs> the the ancient worldview quite completely when 
you start to become a practitioner in your own sacred rights, even if they're created by you, right? Or you can access it through something that's been symbolically potent for a long time. It's ultimately your relationship to it that matters. And I think that the baby's been thrown out with the bathwater on spiritual stuff because of the debates over historicity and all that. And when it comes down to it is like, well, (laughs) I talk about this all the time, but the the doctrine of emanations that is basically a part of every religious system of the ancient world. And if we, (laughs) you know, modern, modern science is always talking about this idea of the, the coming singularity, the coming singularity. In fact, all of science is really repackaging ideas from the mystery schools like the big bang is identical to the cosmic egg and the idea that i've come to internalize is that the big bang or the birth of the the sun through the cosmic egg is not a point on a chronological timeline somewhere in a linear past but it's actually an eternal happening at all moments. And so that source and singularity can be connected to and invoked at any time, at all times. And that there's some incredible power in that to heal, to enlighten, to find the love and find the enjoyment in life and get out of darkness. That, that That's always there. And even images like the Virgin of Guadalupe, it's kind of an it's kind of a emergence out of an egg in the sort when you look at the Vesica Pisces symbolism. I mean, it's just it always it's always the same thing once you kind of get the the foundational symbols comprehended. Yeah, and, and I think the and the idea that what you talked about, you know, this constant birth that's going on moment to moment, and we're all connected to that. We're all part of that. So we're all connected through that. And there's a beauty to that interconnectedness is what's so beautiful to me. I just, you know, you know, we've never met, but but I feel your energy. I mean, I have really good. I just have really good energy talking to you, Chance. And, I, you know, I'm, I'm not the greatest public speaker. I stumble on my words as I go through these presentations and stuff. And but but I but I feel we're trying to bring uh, ideas together and your viewers connecting with those ideas so that they have this own creation and peace in their hearts and in their bodies and in their souls, you know, and I think it's really, I don't know. I think it's pretty, I think it's really lovely. (laughs) Me too, man. (laughs) You're, you're great vibes too, bro. I love, love talking to you, man. So, so anyway, we were talking about all that wordplay stuff and again, one of the greatest cuneiform scholars, he's deceased now, this A.R. George. He is, anything he writes is astonishing. They're so good at the languages, it just leaves you dumbfounded. So you 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 don't realize it, but if you read a lot of cuneiform texts, the ancient Babylonian and Mesopotamian scholars in general, they were looking for word plays and names. And, you know, A.R. George says, they Babylonian scholars are fond of speculative interpretation of names in particular. This is not a trivial pursuit, but a means of revealing profound truth about the nature and function of deities and their attributes. So if you were an ancient Babylonian astrologer 
and you were looking at a constellation and you found a double meaning in a, in a name of that constellation, you would interpret that as a revelation about that star figure. So um, we just don't think that way. We just don't just don't even think that way today. And to just give an example, this is again, this is a, a diviner from Babylonia. He writes Shammai, Shammai, and Shammai means heavens or skies. And he's writing skies. He, there's no verb of being, so you, you insert that in your head. It's like a lot of Arabic sentences. Are Shammai of water. So that come that's where the idea that that this this it's a Semitic idea that the skies or heavens are comprised of water. It's in Genesis chapter one verses seven and eight, where you know God separates the waters from the heavens and the earth. There's a body of water in the heavens still, and it comes from this idea, this Babylonian idea that Shammai is Shammai. It's of water. The heavens are of water. And because the word of water is embedded within them, and you've got some empirical proof, it rains, you know, water falls from the heavens, and the skies are blue, kind of like the oceans and large bodies of water. And that's where that comes from. And of course, the greatest pun of all time, at least in Christian circles, uh, is Jesus says to Peter, and I also say to you, you're a rock. And on this rock, I'm going to build my church it's in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. Of course, the pun is Petrus. Peter's name is Rock. And he says on this rock, and it by it's a little rock. He's saying, you're a rock. You're a handheld cobblestone that anybody could pick up. And I'm going to build my church on you. And that's kind of dumbfounding. Roman Catholic Church, you know, again, I learned this. I knew this by the time I was 10. I had this phrase, you know, memorized. The Catholic Church, Church has taken this so seriously that the pun on Peter is the it's the proof that Peter was the first pope. That's a serious pun. The Catholic, the Catholic Church is not messing around with this. They're taking this pun extremely seriously. Yet we don't think that way today. I wouldn't I wouldn't say, hey, your name's Chance, so you're going to be lucky. Because your name's chance, because that means, you know, chance, you're willing to take a chance, you know, and that kind of stuff. We just don't do it that way, you know, and um, but they did. So how how this is where it gets a little bit I've got to you've got to endure that your viewers have to endure this part of the presentation. So how did wordplay become pervasive in cuneiform writing? It's how cuneiform writing evolved. It's invented a little before 3000 BC by the Sumerians. However, more and more Akkadian-speaking people move into the Sumeria, which is southern Mesopotamia, and they're speaking Akkadian language, which later we know is Babylonian and Assyrian. They adopt the Sumerian writing system to write their cuneiform, this, use it to write uh, their Akkadian language using the Sumerian cuneiform script. Yet they retain thousands and thousands of these things we call Sumerian logograms. So whenever you're reading transliterated cuneiform, you'll see these capital letters start showing up. That's a Sumerian logogram. It's just a Sumerian word. The best way to think of it is Sumerian word. Um, 
you especially see it if you're reading astronomical and astrological tablets. Here's one of the most popular Sumerian logograms. By the way, there's 600 cuneiform signs. And so it's not like learning English, like in 26, you know, learn 26 alphabet letters. Alphabetic scripts are really easy to learn, which is why it's such a great invention. Cuneiform is really cumbersome and really difficult to learn. So here's the cuneiform sign on in Sumerian. It just means heaven, sky. The Babylonians and Assyrians borrow it to write their word. They can use it as a symbol like on. And you read the word on as shamu, skies or heavens. You can also read it dingir, which means God in Sumerian. In Babylonian Syrian, it means Ilu, God. Okay, so you just write this one cuneiform sign, and it allows you to write the word, because you'd have to write Ilu out syllabically. It'd be like Ilu, and you'd have to write two or three cuneiform signs to, you could just go boom, Dingir, all done. But this cuneiform sign is used to write a whole whole bunch of different Babylonian and Assyrian words. That's where the plosomy shows up. So, and can mean shamu, skies, heavens, can mean yao, mine, it can mean kakabu, star, it can mean chibultu, your barley, it can mean zakupu, which means to impale, which means, you know, shove a giant pole up your bum, out your mouth so that you die. It can mean sha'av, it can mean asaku, Tabu can also be read dingir, which in Babylonian, they knew meant the word ilugat. So when you use that one cuneiform sign, it can mean skies, heavens, mind, star, bar of eel, uh, barley ear, impaling of tabu and God. Uh, by the way, that's just one cuneiform sign. There's 600 of them. So this really gets dumbfounding, actually. So. There's also an astonishing number of homophones in cuneiform writing. We have some in English, two, two, two. I went to your house and ate two donuts, and then I ate too much and my stomach hurt. You know, so there, there, there. We've got them, but in, you just can't even imagine it in cuneiform. So I'm going to give you an example. So here's an example of the cuneiform sign mul which means star in Sumerian. It's the logoran, Sumerian logoran that represents Kakabu and Akkadian, which is Babylonian Syrian. It can mean star, but it can also mean a whole bunch of other words. It can mean shatirtu, writing, shitru, right? Uh, another form of writing. Shatirtu is a inscription, but it also means writing. Nabatu, uh, to shine brightly. Um, and it can also be read mulu, which means mulu, which is an arrow, as in a bow and arrow. So you're like, well, that's pretty cool. Uh, one cuneiform sign means all those Babylonian words. Well, that's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of polysemy embedded in that. And then you go, oh, there's six different ways to write the mul sign. And when you're reading transliterated you know, cuneiform, when you see those little numbers show up, it just means the most common form of a cuneiform sign doesn't have a subscript. If it's the second most common, most common form, it'll be like, for instance, mul two. 
So that's another way to write star. Mole three isn't usually written for star. It's written for wood wasp and watercourse for reasons that no one knows. Mole four is used for star. And I could go on, and, but just remember, every one of those cuneiform signs that can be read mole, that means star in Sumerian and represent the Babylonian word kakabu, which is star, also have other readings and meanings. And Babylonian astrologers know every single one of them. They speak this language. They are polyglots. They're fluent into, into the, in this language. And when they find wordplay, they're, they're predisposed to see it as revelation. I think so, maybe the reason for all this variety is, I mean, we, we see that as like, whoa, how did it get that way? But this is a time with no, no internet or printing press to bring about some kind of standardization of these essential like abbreviations that logograms represent. So it could easily, <laughs> in regions not even that far apart from each other geographically, spiral out of control pretty quick as for convenience one group of astronomer priests decide to use the way it's written for mole two and the others are another group is using it as mole four right and yeah. and then eventually their descendants are looking at what their predecessors wrote and as a education and forming maybe dictionaries or or whatever lexicons and it it all just sort of snowballs. That's kind of how I imagine that this could have come about as it did. Yeah, and the, one of the things they're trying to do with those there's there's Sumerian, Babylonian or Akkadian lexicons, and one of the things they're trying to preserve is that knowledge of Sumerian, that sacred language of Sumerian. Um, it was used as a sacred language by the Babylonians, and so they're trying to, in essence retain the idea that these come from pictographs. They come originally, you know, Iku, if you look at mole number five there, we did a presentation on the Iku, if you remember, one of our interverse presentations was on that. That means field. And it's also one of the cuneiform, uh, it's one of the constellations. And because it's such a popular and important constellation, they're like, well, you know what? It also means star. So it it represents star also eventually in these lexicons. Um, but remember, it also it also represented the ark. It also in the, the Gilgamesh epic, the Aku is the Babylonian ark. It's a square. And it's did you know, John? I don't know if I ever told you this, but I do uh, a sideshow occasionally where we. We analyze whether it's there intentionally or synchronistically esoteric symbolism that we find in comic book movies from Marvel and this big blockbuster movie from 2012, The Avengers, the first Avengers movie. Right at the beginning of that film, they are showing this secret underground government project where they're examining this alien artifact called the Tesseract, which is a cube with a star glowing inside of it that yeah. has magical properties essentially like <laughs> long story short the yeah. name that they gave the secret project that, that was researching this sacred cube was project pegasus and i'm like that's e that's iku <laughs> you know like yeah. all the symbolism of iku and the pegasus square was basically 
there in the film regarding that particular MacGuffin, the the Tesseract object. So I thought at that point, somebody knows <laughs> some of this symbolism or it's just coming through. It's just coming through the creativity. But it blew my mind because, you know, I would have even known about all of this stuff hidden in the Pegasus Square, if not for that conversation we had or reading your book. And and when you look at Iku, the thing that's so funny to me, so like, wow, how did how could a field turn into a horse? Well, maybe it's because Iku is the Mycenaean word for horse. So like when they say Iku, like, oh yeah, it's a horse. <laughs> so I mean, it, so like, okay, you know, well, we'll just turn it into a horse. Yeah, it says field, but in our language, our spoken language, it's horse. And then you have, you know, Homer's a hostage Babylonian astrologer. His name means hostage. He's taken as a hostage. And that's probably where they learned to read Lamashi writing. I, I think that's where they got it. But so anyway, when you see those capital letters, please know they're Sumerian. Please know that they represent all of these other Babylonian words. And Matthew and Luke knew those Babylonian words. So they knew there was a whole envelope of information underneath. So when you wrote the word mul, you could be referring to mul, mul two, mul three, mul four, mul five, mul x. And you could be you could also have other underlying meanings other than star, could be God, shining brightly, inscription, writing, arrow, foundation, ornament, pierce, wood, wasp, watercourse, distant time, fruit, feeling elated, field, cow, moon, and month. Feeling elated also tended to refer to male libido. So usually it meant you were sexually aroused. Um, so it could even have a sexualized meaning to it. Um, anyway, so that's just in that's one. That's one cuneiform sign. That's why it took three years to master this language. Um, so when Daniel became the head Babylonian, the supervisor of all the Babylonian Manu, they it just implies that that he and the rest of the Jewish scholars understood Lamashi writing, and so did probably Math, Matthew and Luke. So I just want to give an example of it. I'm going to scoot through this really fast. Numenalish, Tablet 7. So Tablet 7, they really show you how they use punning. If you use it, if you read it in English, probably the best translation is Stephanie Dolly's version, um, uh, Myths from Mesopotamia, and she has a Numenalish uh, in there. And Tablet 7 is translated into English. You'll see all the capital letters. There's Sumerian logograms. So what this the Babylonian scholars do, they're, they're probably astrologer priests, but what they do is they use wordplay on 50 Sumerian epithets for Marduk, which is the planet Jupiter, uh, and how they were, they were used, these, these wordplays in the epithets were used to compile every single line. By the way, when you see Marduk there, he's standing on the Mushushu uh, serpent, the Mushushu is a snake or serpent. Is it's Hydra? It's Hydra. Um, I guess Hydra in English. Um, and so that's he's literal. It's a celestial image right there. So you know when you read Mulapin's one of the cuneiform tablets, and I think I have it there. Um, uh, it's so little right there. I can't tell. 
But one of the lines from Wolpin says, Ashmulga Udashu Damat Ane Barma Gubzu Muldinir Amaud Nebiru. So literally, you're translating that. It just means one big star. Its light is dim. It divides the sky in half. The star of the god Marduk, the crossing. Nibiru is an epithet for it. comes right out of Star Atlas, uh, Mulapin, which originally dates to about 1000 BC. It's, it's from Nineveh. It's from Assyria. It's written in, in uh, Assyria. So Dingir Nibiru, the god Nibiru, is the god crossing. It's defined. The reason the epithet is called crossing or fjord, you could, you know, you could the the ferrying place, you know, is it's it's the place where um, the planet god uh, Marduk would cross the ecliptic. You could go from the northern ecliptic to the southern ecliptic. But they're moving inside the ecliptic, and the the crossing is the very middle. We would call it the well. The ecliptic is it, it would be the middle of the ecliptic. You know, the center of the ecliptic is is the crossing point, and that's what Nibiru means. So, uh, you know, I'm just going to give you an example. I've done this before, but um, the god Nibiru is his literally Anumalish. Tablet 7, line 128 says, the god Nibiru, his star, which in the sky they caused to appear. How did they know that? How did they know that the god crossing was his star, which in the sky they, meaning the other gods, caused to appear? Well, you know, you look at Multu Dingir Nibiru, the star god crossing. That's how they, that's one of the ways you could write it, Multu. Well, when you look at the name in Kneeform, You'd write it, this is why logograms are so important. You'd have to write Muldingir Nebiru. Nebiru is a Babylonian name. It's Kadian. Um, so, but they're reading it, they're breaking it in a part on purpose to see if there's any hidden word plays in it. So when they look at it, they're like, oh, well, Dingir Nebiru. Well, Dingir means God. Dingir also can represent. Kakabu, which means star. Dean Gear can can also represent the Babylonian word Shameh, which is skies. For whatever reason, they don't use Ne number two. B, literally, it's the Sumerian, it's the Sumerian equivalent to the Babylonian word Shu, which means his. And then Re, you know, you can see Re right there. And Re means a whole bunch of, you know. Babylonian words, excuse me, Ru, uh, Nibiru, the cuneiform sign Ru represents the Babylonian word Shah, um, which can mean which, and uh, it also can represent the word Ina, which means in. So then they just wrote all those word downs in a coherent sentence. This was the revelation. The god Nibiru is his star, which in the skies they cause to appear, the other gods cause to appear. And that's just a simple explanation for how that line, remember, that line is being written as a historic event, it's, it's as an epiphany. So so who are these astrologers, these hostage astrologers? Well, one of them is definitely Homer. 
Daniel's probably the most popular. The Magi are the astrologers. And, you know, they're showing up at the birth of, the, of according to Matthew, they're showing up at Jesus's birth. And in fact, the people that first discover the, that Jesus' star was in the heavens are Babylonian, pagan Babylonian astrologers. And probably the most interesting of all this group, the other Babylonian astrologers, Barosus. Remember, he writes the history of Babylonia and the Babylonicaia, um, which is a history of Babylonia. And uh, he's writing under, you know, Greek rule of his homeland in Babylonia. And he is so dissatisfied with the way that the um the the Greeks are treating Babylonia. He kind of let they let the city kind of fall into ruins that he goes off to the Greek Isle of Kos and opens up a uh, a Babylonian uh, astrological school on the Greek Isle of Kos, which is remarkable. But again, he's an author. He's writing the history of Babylonia that's written in stars. So you move on and you're like, so this ancient system, you, so if you had to summarize it, the ancients believe that pictures in the constellations depicted uh, momentous historical events and that wordplay or polysemy in the constellations can form the oldest titles in part or uh, the characters' identities, their themes, the actions, and the details that were taking place in each stellar tableau. They and were the also, John, for everybody out there, what you're talking about is super important because it means mo most, if not all, of what has been taken on faith as ancient history is very likely <laughs> derived from asterisms and constellations. And then recorded as such. So sure. you really can't. <laughs> I mean, it's already kind of a, a silly premise to think that you can trust history of the ancient world as like something that you can plant your flag in and say, yep, that really happened. Because yeah. it's it's a story of a story of a story of a story. But now we can definitely scrutinize things under the lens of astrotheology. and. When you have that lens, things actually make more sense, not less sense. And I think that it's part of the legitimizing of particularly like new kingdoms or empires that they would hostage the astrologer and then want to get their their divine right of rulership established on the books as it is found in the stars or added to the stars if necessary. Yeah, exactly. And. And I think one of the things, well, at some point in the new year, you're going to have my research partner, John Lundvall, on. And one of the things, his specialty is uh, the way astronomical and, and astronomical wisdom was embedded in oral traditions. And remember, all of these literate societies were once oral. So there's, there's going to be a, a precedent to depict your stories on the pre-existing constellations, which is why so many of them feel recycled and with different details. And that's what the celestial code, that's really what I was trying to get at is that there is actually a template to all these stories and it's pictures in 
the oldest constellations and wordplay embedded in those pictures. So, so, so you, you're talking about what you're saying, but when you get John Lundvall, and he'll talk about that, that oral traditions depict their stories in the constellations because it's a cyclical culture. Remember, we live in a linear world now. We look at calendars. Today's what? December 17th, 2023. And, you know, and tomorrow is going to be December 18th. They lived in a cyclical world where the universe was reconstructed through myths and legends and rituals throughout the year. Think of the liturgical year in in the Christian calendar. It's a cyclical calendar. Advent, where I'm in the season of Advent, it's a sacred season, right? And it's going to eventually, we'll go into Advent and we'll eventually go into Lent and then the Easter season, et cetera, you know. So whenever anything's cyclical, it's in the sky. If it's in, if it's cyclical, it's in the sky. So Matthew, Mark, and you know, excuse me, Matthew and Luke. So they they're try, they don't know anyone who witnessed the birth of Jesus, but they got this system of truth telling, of history, as pictures in the constellations and wordplay embedded in those pictures. So they're looking up. They know there's a virgin, and they know that the western part of the virgin says pregnant. That there's a divinity who's pregnant. So we got a pregnant virgin, we have an infant king, and we've got a manger. And we're going to take a look now at the nativity themes that are common to Matthew and Luke and how they may have come about. So, so each one of them talk about a pregnant virgin that gives birth to an infant king in a manger. So remember, the pregnant virgin's name is Mariam. No one's really sure about what the name means, but St. Jerome, one of the, hypos, the, the hypoth- hypothesized meanings is from the Hebrew Mar-Yam, just literally Mar-Bitter-Yam-Sea. And um, I want to point something out with that because I can also share the origin of Virgo if you want to go there. But So, again, going back to this is right out of Mulapin, 7th century B.C., first written 1000 BC uh, in Assyria. Dishmo Absin Dingir Shalah Shabultu. The Pharaoh constellation, we're talking about Virgo now. The Pharaoh constellation is the goddess Shalah, the ear of barley corn. It's Shalah eventually becomes, you know, is embodiment. She's an embodiment. Uh, She's literally what we would call Spica. She's she's Virgo. She's also a pharaoh. She's also, that's what she's holding is the wheat spike on the right. Shalah is the pregnancy goddess that's in the western part of uh, Virgo. So there's a great deal of similarity there. I want to weigh in a little bit on the bitter sea, Miriam name. This may or may not be a connection, but I find it interesting. Back to the story of Manu from Hinduism. Manu is basically the Hindu Noah as well. And each mm. cycle, each new Manu survives a flood and then repopulates the human race. But in the story of Manu, as the sole survivor of the flood, he doesn't save like, you know, it's not exactly identical, right? He doesn't save his family, but he 
performs a sacrifice of pouring butter and sour milk into the floodwaters. And from that, the a woman is born who is the daughter of Manu, who also is the uh the mother of the new human race repopulates humanity. So I don't know about bitter sea and sour milk being poured into the water, but you see the similarities there of like, you know, foam sprung Aphrodite and even that concept of sour or bitter. It's not that far off. And uh, I don't know. I I see something there that may be a connection. Yeah. And you, you know, I don't know all the, all the other various languages, but, but again, I, when it comes to things like, dealing with cuneiform and dealing with Greek and things like that, I have enough acumen to to feel pretty confident when I when a cognate or a potential wordplay shows up. So um yeah, so the the way that you know Shalah, the the woman on the right holding the spike of the wheat corn turned into a virgin is probably like this. The original title of Virgo is obscene. It literally means a pharaoh. It's an agricultural pharaoh. It's a plowed field. It's a, a field that's already got a plow, uh, that divot in it uh, for planting a seed, right? Well, the ob sign could be read unu. And unu, again, remember those little numbers? That's for the scholars. They weren't reading this unu too. They were reading it as unu. And they knew that unu was also a Sumerian logogram for that meant it literally meant virgin so when you saw the word ab you knew that an alternate reading also embodied the word virgin the sumerian word for virgin and seen could also be read see and see was a, a logogram that meant it means to turn into or to become so embedded in obscene are the words the pharaoh and then the word see which means to turn into or become and then the word unu, which means virgin. So yeah, the pharaoh turns into or becomes a virgin. That's probably how the pharaoh constellation transformed into a virgin. Okay. Um, so and the idea that she also may have the word bitter sea is right there as well. Remember that uh, abscene means pharaoh. The ab sign, uh, rep- it, it means sea. Literally, it's the Sumerian word for sea or ocean. And in later Akkadian, when I say later, I mean after about 9th century BC, it, the typical Babylonian word for sea is tam, tamtu. But after about the 8th century, you see the word maratu show up. It means sea, right? And that's really cool because maratu means sea. But maratu is literally, it's not a homophone. It's a homonym that means bitter. So when you said, when you write the logogram ab, in Babylonian, it means maratu, and maratu simultaneously means sea and bitter. In the same way, our word for bear means to have a baby and the animal that lives in the woods. And then remember, the western part of this virgin constellation is pregnant. So you end up with a pregnant virgin whose name can literally be translated as bitter sea. You know, so so anyway, that's where I think the connection to Mar- Mariam. I I do think it's bitter sea. I know a lot of scholars are having a conniption over me saying that right now, 
and a lot of them are saying, whoa, go, John, go, you know, <laughs> but anyway, um, so just think about that. So you have the pregnant virgin bitter seed. So uh, I didn't write about that in the article because, again, it's equivocal. The the pregnant virgin's not equivocal. That's right there. It's right in all the ancient, the pre-Christian, you know, Hellenic texts, and it's in the pre-Christian cuneiform text. There's no question about that. The the part about bitter sea, Miriam, that's equivocal. That's in the celestial code of scripture, but it's not in the article, and that's coming out in February. So, so you have pregnant virgin. There are some scholars that think you could argue that. Her name is also Bitter Sea, which is Miriam, which is Mary. There's an infant king. There's a manger. And then you have the child king nativities. And whenever this baby shows up, it's literally identified as a child and a king and the Christ. Right. So that's not that hard to find. You look at Regulus. Regulus is Sharu. The word literally means child and king in Babylonian. It's housed, its zodiacal sign is the lion. There are about 12 different ways to write lion in cuneiform. Uh, at about the time that, you know, Matt, Matthew's writing, Luke's writing, one of the words for lion, it's written goo. It's written with the goo for sign, right? But goo can also be read gudu. And gudu is a Sumerian title for anointed one. It's, it's just a homophone for Gudu 4, which literally means anointed one. It's the Christ. It's a Sumerian title. Could also get translated into Babylonian. It's a Sumerian logogram that can mean Pashishu in Babylonian. But Gudu 4 means anointed one. Nobody can have a conniption from that because it's right out of a bilingual Sumerian Babylonian text, right? Another title for lion. Is just it's typically written or ah, but remember, cuneiform is really clunky. Yeah, like mul, dingir, ooh, ah. So they're just going like, you know what? Boom! I'm just going to go. I don't have to write all these determiners. I'm just going to write ah. There it goes. Nice and easy, fast way to write lion. Shows up a lot in the first, uh, the the late cuneiform texts, like in the first century. Ah can be read may. May 5, but that's for the scholars. Ah can be read May, and May is a Sumerian logogram that means anointed one. So you have literally, you have the word child king embedded in Regulus, and you also have the word Christ in the constellation that houses this child king. I think that's how this star, this star god came to be viewed as the child king and the Christ. That's my argument for that. So the miraculous impregnation by the Holy Spirit. Remember, Luke and Matthew may be coming off oral tradition of how Miriam was impregnated by the Holy Spirit. The other possibility is they had nothing to go on, but they had a system for reading history in the stars. Turn to that same constellation. You end up with, uh, you can see there, you got Leo. It's written, Cuneiform sign. Ah, ah just can be can be read lion. Ah can represent the Babylonian word eno, which means in or by means of. 
Okay, so now I'm going to drop down. We see where I'm at. Regulus. Regulus means Sharu. Again, it's a child and king. The Sumerian logogram can be read, written Tor or Tor 5. Again, they're not writing the five. They're going to read that as Tor. And Tor is child. So then, remember, this is also a deity. You know, Sharu is a deity. And so it's a Dingir. Dingir can represent the word Elu, which means holy. Um, Sharu, remember the Sumerian logram on the second one down there next to Sharu, can be written Tor 5. And Tor 5 can be read too. In fact, the sign name is too. By the way, every one of these cuneiform signs, all 600 of them, you know, we have the alphabet A says ah, as in apple, B, B, C, K, D, D. Well, every one of the 600 cuneiform signs has a name. The Tor 5 sign's name is Tu, and Tu is also a Sumerian word that means wind. So when you look at Sheru, you get holy wind, Tor 5. It's not even a homophone. Tor 5 is also read Du, and Du means Aladu in Babylonia. It means to beget or sire. So when you write down all, this is, I know it looks cumbersome, and it might even look cons contrived. But it's not. It's right out of the cuneiform writing. Tor is child. Du is one of the readings for Tor number five. It means begotten or sired. Ah can mean by. Dingir means holy. And Tu means win. So all of these secondary meanings reveal that the child was begotten by the Holy Spirit. So his name's Jesus, Jesus, he saves or he will save. Again, comes right out of the constellation writing. Uh, Mul, if you were, you, you don't have to write the, the determinative, but they usually do. So you could write Multu means star. It can mean constellation too. So Multu, and then Oz, lion, I'm looking at it on the left there, if you look at the cuneiform. And any Babylonian scholar would know if you smush those two signs together, you get the car sign. And car just means to save. And you could just render it in any of the, you know, the it's the it's the infinitive form. You render it into a finite form. He saves, she saves, they saves, um, I save, you save. So itiru, he will literally means he saves or he will save. So they would have known that right there embedded in the cuneiform constellation that houses the child king also has the words, name the child he will save. And that's where they get the name Yesos. And that's how I believe they're getting it. It's right out of the constellation, right? So um, Luke's nativity narrative, I'm trying to speed it up a little bit. So he's got some pretty distinct story elements, right? He's saying there's a pregnant virgin swaddled, and she, she's, she has a child. She swaddles him. She lies him in a manger. An angel of the Lord is present. Shepherds are present. A flock's present. And a heavenly host is present. It's The Greek says, Plethos, Stradios, Oranoi, Oraniao, sorry, Oraniao. 
And literally, that means multitude of the heavenly army. And all that's right up there in the sky. So when you look at uh, a time when the Bethlehem, 85 BC, when the child king star Regulus culminates or is on the meridian, you have pregnant virgin, you have a manger, but you also have Orion out on the western horizon, and you have a Libra rising in the east. So you look at those, you also have Utu, uh, which is Bootes, it's the herdsman constellation. The herdsman also represents your standard shepherd. I just wanted to show you that there are, sh are shepherd constellations present with the pregnant virgin and the child in the manger. Orion's cuneiform title is Sipa, which is shepherd. That alone means shepherds in the plural. Uh, and I, that's what I explain in the book, this last code of scripture. In the article, I want you to show that there's actually a picture of another shepherd. So there's plural shepherds in the stars. Boetides is, Boetides is he's a herdsman in Greek. But they would have known his cuneiform title as Utu, and Utu, rep, one of its representations is for Reu, which is the Babylonian word for shepherd. So you have a shepherd, and that they don't tell you exactly what the northwestern stars, uh, which ones they are, but the northwestern stars in Boetes are defined as uh, Lakru. Lakru means it means the U or the you know, the, the female sheep, the mother sheep. But Lakru also means flock. So so you have a flock constellation in the stars. At the same time, you have a pregnant version and a child and a manger and shepherds. So there's your shepherds and there's your flock. And there's where you get these disparate story elements that all show up in the same, same tableau. Very likely, for whatever reason, Luke saw the shepherds as being a really important aspect in the story and the flock as being an important aspect. And that's what he writes about in his version of, you know, the of the nativity. So so that's where I think that comes from. And then he goes a little further. Remember, an angel of the Lord shows up and uh, is present with the you know, with the shepherds and the flock. So when you look up at the night sky and the you know, pregnant virgin, so you, uh, the uh, angel of the Lord is probably Orion. Uh, some of the cuneiform titles for Orion are Dingir, Popsukal. Literally, that means the god or the deity, preeminent or foremost messenger. Remember, Agilos, the Greek Agilos angel, means messenger. It's what it is. So you have the foremost preeminent messenger. Sukal means messenger or angel. Dingir, deity, can also represent the Babylonian word Belu, which is Lord, and also the word Shah of. So when you write down these hidden meanings for Orion, the Sumerian Sukal Dingir, yeah, or Dingir Papsukal. They don't use the pap portion, but Dingir Papsukal. Sukal means angel, and Dingir means of and the Lord. So you have an angel of the Lord. That's probably how the idea of an angel of the Lord being present 
uh, at the birth of Jesus came about. Being present with the shepherds, because remember, Orion is one of the shepherds. So, so then, so there's your angel, the Lord. So then in the southeast rising, you have Libra, Sumerian cuneiform Lamashi writing version of this. If you're reading it as a constellation, it's written Dingir Gish Erin. You could have the Mul sign in there. You don't have to. It's definitely a deity. They describe it as a deity in Mulapin. It's a 7th century BC star atlas. Again, Dingir means many, many words. One of them is God. One of them is heaven. One of them is of Gish means Itsu, which is wood. It's a wooden, Irene is a, it's a scale. It's a wooden scale. Gish means Itsu, which is wood. Gish can also mean Shamun, which is, which is heaven or sky. Irene is the Sumerian word for scale. It represents the Babylonian word Zibanitu, which just is scale. It's your Babylonian word for, you know, Libra. But I want to make a little point here because I think most common belief around the origin of Libra as its own constellation separate separated out from Scorpius is that the the Romans invented that some 2000 years ago. And what what appears to be here in the Lumashi is that the concept of the scales in that part of the sky way predated the Romans, but maybe they're systematizing something that the astronomer priests had seen there for a lot longer than the idea of Libra being, you know, a zodiacal constellation and one of the 12. Yeah, and it's it's very likely a chance that, uh, so, you know, it was this, it was the clause, the clause of the, you know, uh, Aratus writes that the claws of the scorpion become Libra. And I'm I'm wondering if because of precession of the equinoxes, they had to kind of add a few more constellations, and then they used this system to create Libra. And they just looked in the stars, you know, and they I, I don't know where I could look at it more. I'd have to look into it more. I don't find a direct connection. But, you know, the the Hellenic people, the Greek writers said that it was the claws of the scorpion. So I just would need to look into that uh, more. But what is definitely present in Libra in its Sumerian spelling are the alternate readings, army of heaven. And that's that's what shows up at Jesus's birth. It's a heavenly army. It's an army of heaven. And it's translated as heavenly hosts, and they have all these peaceful little angels, but they're not. They're an army. They would have been armed and ready to do battle with anybody who wanted to harm this this savior, this this Christ, this Christ child, you know. Um, So anyway, so you have the shepherds, you have an angel of the Lord, you have a child king, you have an army of heaven, and they're all present at the same time in stars. And I'm suggesting that that's what Luke is basing his version of Jesus's birth on. He knew that this picture in the star proved that it occurred on Earth as a momentous scene from history. 
So then he says she bore a firstborn son and she swaddled him and laid him in a manger. Again, now we're just going off of a whole bunch of wordplay embedded in all of those pictures. Remember, Lamashi writing often, it's the pictures that are conveying the wordplay. So you have, you know, that pregnancy goddess there holding a date frond, okay? Date frond, peish, in Sumerian means to bear, to give birth. You know, lion, it can be read or ah. Remember, previously it could just be read ah. Uh, remember, they're always trying to shorten the writing because it's so cumbersome to write in clay that way. Um, so Ura is one of the pretty common astrological titles for uh, for the lion. Another title for the lion, Ura, you can see that Ur means she, Ah, is a Sumerian logogram for the firstborn son. Okay. And Sheru, of course, is Regulus. It's the child star. And so when you look at that, when you look at Leo and Coma Berenices, which is the date front that the uh, pregnancy goddess is holding, and you have in Leo one of its titles, one of its cuneiform sizes, ah, you have the words firstborn son. So you have she bore a firstborn son. And um, so this is really intriguing to me. So one of the titles for the lion, if you look at the lion up there in your picture, you see the word labu, labu. It, it just means lion. And if you're, the glottal stop there, it's like the word, if you say the word bot, bottle, bottle, da, is actually a glottal stop. It's a letter in the Semitic languages. It's, it's Aleph and Hebrew and Arabic and all the other Semitic languages. Um, and the way you write it in cuneiform is you just end up doubling the next vowel. You just added, just double the vowel. But the problem with that is when you double the vowel, and it's literally written that way in a Sumerian uh, Babylonian uh, lexical text, a bilingual lexical text, it's labu, it's el la bu with a double u, literally u u at the end. And that's where that little circumflanks comes from but that's literally how you write the word to wrap up labu is the word for to wrap up you could wrap up a gift a present an object so incredibly the word lion one of its titles also embodies the word to wrap up regulus is the king star right it's the child king star it's Sheru. Sumerian logogram is Lugal, but an alternative reading is Shar. Shar is a kind of cloth, right? It's a it's a very a fine cloth, a regal cloth. So then when you write down these word plays, in Leo you get Labu wrapped. In Leo, you also get Ur, which means him. You get Ah, which means in, and in Regulus, you get the word Lugal, which means king. Alternate reading is shar, which is cloth. She wrapped him in cloth. And then the final one, you just keep going there. You, you look at one of the really common late cuneiform titles for, uh, for Leo is mul or ah, literally the constellation lion. Mul can be read te, which means to place or lay. Uh, the or in Ura, 
is it or is it phoneticizes the word she, the Sumerian word for she, or also phoneticizes the word him. Uh, we saw can mean in. Uh, M44 is, of course, the manger. And you have she laid him in a manger. So that's probably how I think how Luke created the sign of the Christ child, that that's where it came from. So if you want to rediscover the Christmas star and its supernatural motion in Matthew, uh, remember, Matthew has a totally different story. He's got a child king, pregnant virgin. He's got astrologers and treasures. You know, they translate it as gift, but it's not. It's treasures. The treasures are gold, frankincense, myrrh. And they show up at a house, Jesus's house. There's no manger, which is one of the real discordant aspects of the, you know, of the two stories. So, again, remember that Virgo, the original cuneiform is abscene. Abscene means pharaoh. Uh, so you're looking at, again, we're going back to the original cuneiform title for uh, Virgo, abscene. We got um, the the ab in abscene. Remember, it means it, you know, it means sea, and the Babylonian word for sea is maratu. So it's a Sumerian logogram, can mean maratu, sea. Maratu also means bitter. The Sumerian logogram for bitter is sheish, and that's also the Sumerian logogram for mar. So probably in the ab sign, you have a bitter sea, which is, you know, Mary's name, but you also have the word for mar which means bitter. Um, the star Spica, it's a wheat spike star uh, in uh, Greek. The Sumerian logogram for wheat is gig, and gig also means frankincense. So that's probably where you got the idea of frankincense. So you have... This is probably Mer where the, this is probably where the uh, mythology of Adonis, also born of a virgin, <laughs> uh, the aspect mm -hmm. of Adonis's birth is that his mother whose name was Murrah, <laughs> was turned into a myrrh tree as punishment for the transgression of giving birth to uh, Adonis. And then yep. he's taken to the underworld and et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, right there, it's uh, what I mean is like within this same tableau and all these word plays, someone in a different time and place in a different culture created a different birth of a savior, but it's composed out of the same elements. Yeah, it's it's in essence, it's recycling the same picture story, but using different puns, different word plays, which changes the details, which changes the story exactly as as you're saying. And they're probably seeing some different words up there, some different titles. But uh, that would be a really interesting one to pursue. Um, so. You know, the Matthews version of the story, you know. The wheat spike star, that's pre-Christian. I mean, you know, Matthew and Luke were reading Greek star atlases, and they knew that spica uh, was the weak spike, the weak, the or kernel of wheat, right? Sumerians, gig, gig is wheat, gig is frankincense. They would have known that ab meant sea, and it also meant bitter, and that bitter Another way to write bitter was with the cuneiforms, the Sumerian logogram for myrrh. 
But the other reading for Ab is Abba, and Abba literally means, it means father in Hebrew, but, but it also means astrologers. Um, they were, you know, considered scholarly fathers. They were the uh, most revered scholars uh, in the kingdom, in any kingdom in this era, right? And what's really intriguing, if you go up there and look at the child king star, remember, Sharu means king, Sharu means child. There are about 50 logograms for ways to write king in, uh, in, in Sumerian. One of them is the U sign right there, and I put it in there for you. And U means, you know, king, but it also means house. It also means Nitsirtu, which is treasures. There's another way that treasures could have come into this, uh, this line from, you know, Matthew's version of the nativity. So another way to write Sharu is with the Mon sign. It looks like man, but it's just the two cuneiform sign there. It literally means 20 as well. And uh, it's also the cuneiform sign that means Shamshu, which is gold. Um, so you have the word in Sharu, alternate Sumerian logogram Sharu mean house and gold. So you have all the elements. In Regulus, you have the word house. In uh, uh, Spica, you have the word Abba, astrologers. In Regulus, you have the word U, treasures, and also the word house. Um, in uh, Regulus, you have the word Mon, which is gold. In uh, Spica, you have the word Geek, which is frankincense. And in, in Spica, you have the word Shesh, which is uh, myrrh. And that's probably how Matthew came to an alternate. He knew that this was a pregnant inversion. He knew that was a child king. He knew that had the word Christ embedded in it. And he just used different word plays for the other details. Does that make sense? You're kind of following along with that. I know it's pretty busy. <laughs> I, I am. You know, this is the kind of thing that if the audience is not fully following the book does a great job of walking you through it as well. It takes maybe take some time to wrap your head around, but I think we've laid out the foundational idea, which is that there's layers and layers of puns and wordplay that give you every detail of the, the nativity story here. And and Matthew and Luke would have known those wordplays. They would have known all of the polysemous readings for each cuneiform sign. So in this is where the, you get to the, the place that none of the astronomers can explain this. Every single astronomer on Earth cannot explain this star's motion. And it's written right there. And you just go through it. You know, you look at the different cuneiform signs for, you know, one of the asterisms for Leo is you know, the lion's head. It's, read, it's written sog, but you could also write it ugu. And ugu is also a word that means them. You look at one of the titles for Leo is Ah, means lion, but Ah can also mean in, the word in, right? Then you go down to Regulus, Sumerian logogram. One of the common Sumerian logograms is Tor, all right? And Tor has alternate readings. One of them is Tu, and Tu phonates the word for to lead or to go before. So you start writing, you write down all these puns, right? King, 
remember King, uh, we, we saw that King could be read with written with the cuneiform sign U, the letter U, right? Well, there's two other ways. Well, there's about 15 different ways to write U, but two of them, U number three and U number six, they literally mean behold and they saw. So you write down all of the puns and all of the ways you can write these cuneiform titles that you see in that picture. And you get U, which is behold, Mul, the star, Dingir, which, U3 and U6, U, U, they saw, A in A3, which is the east, star, what did it do? It went before, and in Ugu, which is the head of Leo, means them. So behold, the star, which they saw in the east, went before them. And then you just finish it up, and then there's just the same word place until having come, it stood over where the child was. So again, you know, you look at again. I I don't want to be redundant here. You know, your your viewers can just press pause, and I can go through. You know, Leo is Oz Lion, um, and it's also uh, read A, and A means you know, it, the Kinev, when you read it A in Sumerian, A also means where. It's the word for where. Um, you know, one is, you know, Dean Gear means Elu, God. Elu, and a variant reading of Elu is Elu, which means over. I go into this in the article in February. Um, it's in the European Journal of Science and Theology, but um, Regulus, the child star, can be read Tour. Which is also read two, and two means to lead or to go before. The child star can be read tor, and tor can be read do. Do means cut to come. The king, the king star, Sharu, it can be written ain. And it's another way to write king, Sharu, which means ain in Sumerian. And ain also means adi, which means until. Uh, Sharu is king. King can be written Lu number two, which forges forges a homophone with Lu, which means it stood to stand or it stood. I just told you that the lion, which is A, can be read A, and A means where. The lion can also be read. Uh, it's you know written with the cuneiform sign A, can be read May. May means it's the Sumerian verb of being. Could you could uh, render it as a preterite was. So when you break down all of the word plays and you write them down, you get until I'm doing exactly where they do it in a numinalish table seven. Until having come, it stood over where the child was. So I'm saying that when Matthew and Luke turned to the sky, they they knew that pictures in the stars frame scenes of monumental historic events. They probably assumed that the birth of their savior would have been born, would have been written in the stars pictographically and in wordplay. When they looked up, they saw an infant king star. They saw a pregnant virgin whose name, Bitter Sea, rendered Jesus, the name of Jesus's mother, Miriam, Bitter Sea. And one of the crucial elements, at least according to Luke, is on the western side of the infant king star. It's the manger M44. And 
So I wanted to leave um, your readers with this. So in case you wanted to know where the, the, the Christmas story is, I'll just leave you with this. So uh, Regulus is the Christmas. It's the star of Bethlehem. It's the child king star. It's what the Magi they said we saw his star in at you know in the east when it rose, right? What they were looking at is Sharu, is Regulus, the child king star. So where is it? Well, if you go out on Christmas morning at 5:30 in the morning, um, if you have kids, you know, they'll already be up. So you might as well go out with your whole family, right? Go ahead out. That's what you're going to see. If you go out, this is Salt Lake City at 530 and you just correct for where you're at, Central Time, Mountain, you know, Eastern Time, Western Time. So you'll look up in the sky and you'll see the lion right there. The brightest star in the lion is Regulus. So there it is. I put a little arrow in there for you. So that's what it's going to look like when you go out. So this is your little quiz, right? You're going to go out on Christmas morning. It's 5.30 in the morning. You're getting up to open up your presents, and you're going to see that star. You'll know where it is because you'll see Orion setting in the southwest, and you'll see a, slight, a bright star a little bit to the right of it. It's Procyon. It's in the little dog. But the one you're looking for is that one, which is Regulus. and it's in Leo. That's very likely the star of Bethlehem. So having said that, it's chapter 12, the Celestial Code of Scripture. I'm so glad you guys took the time to let me go through all that. It was really a pleasure to have you let me go through that. And uh, go back to you and me. <laughs> I hope that was okay and not too pedantic. <laughs> I, I, there are so many clues in there that I couldn't... Uh stop you on that like to me point out other elements of mythology that are otherwise kind of mysterious or maybe there's an origin there there was one thing in leo i believe it was is is there a babylonian word sag that is in there somewhere i think that was a few slides back sag means head it means yeah. head or start beginning so it's Bereshith, the be, the Rish part, it's the same word in, in the beginning in, in Genesis. Bereshith, be means in, Rishith is beginning. So yeah, sag, head. Okay, so that's kind of also uh, cognate with the idea of arke, which is the head, but also like the beginning and also like wisdom, uh, like the Greek archon. But what, yeah. what I'm thinking about here is the, like one symbol that gets conflated with this demiurgos or world savior preserver is the serpent headed or the lion headed serpent right we see that in a, a lot of old like coins and gemstones and things along those lines gets identified yeah. with uh nephis or abraxas these type of it, these type of deities but that word uh sag meaning head in this language that's showing up in leo it's interesting because like one of the one of the philological swaps that occasionally will happen is like the S sound can get made into more of a H aspiration because S and H are both aspirations. Yeah. So yeah. sag and hag are are somewhat cognate. Uh, 
and also G and C sounds are easily interchangeable. So like at the temple of Avebury, the the temple of the serpent at Avebury, the head of the serpent, the head of the temple of the serpent is called Hack Pen. So there's that sag slash hag and hack, like yeah. Hagia Sophia. The, it would be cognate. Yeah. It'd be cognate. So yeah. I'm wondering if if we're also looking at just in that little that little slice of the pie here, the uh the lion headed serpent is also here as well, which is you know, when you do your syncretism, you realize that like Abraxas and Christ are the same concept. So it's probably coming from the same part of the sky. And I've always wondered where that lion-headed serpent might be. It seemed evident that it's somewhere related in Leo, but you have that word head that also becomes like a pun for the word snake whenever you look at it across multiple languages. Yeah. And the other thing is, so uh, so Leo is standing on the uh, Mushushu, the, in Samaritan, it's the Mushush uh, serpent, uh, div- divine serpent. He's the serpent of Marduk, the Marduk, the uh, god, planet god Jupiter. But uh, Leo is actually depicted on a lot of astrological tablets, especially the late ones, standing on Hydra. Uh, so he's standing on the multi-headed serpent, um, who eventually gets its head cut off and um, it makes you wonder if it has something to do with sacred time, because Abraxas is the god of time, right? And one of the things that's interesting, um, the Greeks see the start of the year with Orion. They see the start of the year, which is a summer constellation. And I don't know why, um, but maybe it has something to do with that, you know? Uh I just yeah, just it's just interesting. I I I actually can show you pictures of cuneiform tablets where Leo is standing on the back of Hydra. Uh really intriguing. And they're you know, got cuneiform written all over them and pretty cool. That's great, man. Yeah. Uh, uh so we we found some interesting clues here. I hope the audience is also finding a lot in in that presentation that's helping them connect some dots <laughs> pun yeah. intended because you know yeah. astronomy is all connect the dot right yeah yeah you know it's interesting is i there may be a hundred things that i missed that your viewers other viewers saw and they've connected and they're going to do their own research on um and that's the beauty of just the kind of stuff we're doing that's the beauty of universe that's the beauty of your research that's the beauty of my view, research and that's the beauty of finding uh, common ground with each other and common connections. Absolutely. I mean, ultimately, as fascinating as it is to be able to pull out the details from biblical stories and show word for word that it's up there in the Lumashi <laughs> scripture in the stars. Mm-hmm. What's more important about this is the concept of how that's derived. So you're showing the example so that it's provable that that is a real thing, (laughs) you know, but more important is like, let's, uh, my audience is probably mostly, maybe not mostly, but a lot of researchers themselves. Maybe they're not producing content or they haven't published a book yet, but what I would like to see in the future out of, out of your work is a growing understanding and feel the study where this concept is then taken and applied to other cultures, other civilizations, other languages. Yeah. Uh, and 
you know, maybe even, <laughs> maybe even this is a worldwide thing. Maybe this is the, uh, such an important aspect of the keys to some kind of universal system that predates our understanding of, of ancient history and where this all came from and how it got all the way around the world, who knows, but it seems to be there it, wherever you look. Yeah, that's really interesting, Chance. I, I got to wonder if, I don't know if you remember the book, Hamlet's Mill. Yeah, I um, do. And they they're, they were going, they were believing that procession of the equinoxes spurred what we would call astral theology, you know, and uh, what I'm suggesting is that that may be true, but it also may be true that um, that Lamashi writing and that wherever you get the Mesopotamian constellations, you get this system and those those cyclical picture stories that are very similar, but different. There's a lot of similarities, but different. I, I really think my my belief is. They're looking at the same pictures and reading word plays. They're pulling in different word plays and they're utilizing different word plays. So they get different details on a different picture. So the, you know, Hesiod and the, you know, Greek and Roman scholars before Jesus said, Hey, Ryan could walk on water. There's a picture of him doing it in the stars. Hmm. And then, you know, the gospel writers come along and they said, well, wait a minute, word play for Ryan. His title, son, Damu, can also, it also has, Dingir Damu, the God's son, S-O-N, has the words son of God. And one of his titles is, you know, Hashishu, which is, you know, anointed one. That's the Christ. Oh, my gosh, Jesus walked on water, too. And then they would just look for more puns, you know. So that's kind of. And it also is, it explains why the ancient you know, air quotes, historians don't always have the same details that you would think would show up if we were talking about some sort of real history. Like, imagine you're an, you're an ancient who's in the know, you're, you know, an, one of these historian authors like Barosis is the example I'm going to bring up. And the, <laughs> the Hebrew or Israelite exodus from Moses is pretty contemporary to your time. And a guy parted the Red Sea and an entire huge group of people escaped through that miracle. Yet Barosis doesn't write a thing about that. So when we see how one historian doesn't share details as another historian for things that would have been such major events that you'd think everybody that was writing so-called history would have put it in their work. You see, well, actually, maybe they're just reading a different history from the stars. And that's why their their texts don't line up. Yeah, and another thing, uh, John Lundvall will talk to you, you know, eventually when you have him on uh, Interverse, he'll talk about the way, uh, you know, oral traditions project their monumental historic events onto the stars. So what happens is a historic event starts to take on celestial mythological proportions because you've only got so many constellations to use. And so... Yeah, so you can have uh you you can have a, a, a the picture you know I don't know uh I, of someone maybe parting a sea and someone else you know being dismembered and floating down the sea in the same picture you, you know I'm trying to use the Egyptian myth uh of the dismemberment of 
uh, I forget what god it is that gets dismembered and is floating in a in a box. Osiris. Osiris. Yeah. Sorry, I should know that. Uh, yeah. So in, it's a lot to it, keep track of. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I don't do. I'm, I'm embarrassed to tell you, I, I do very little with uh, Egyptian, and I really need to to get more schooled on it because I'm sure there's a lot of Egypt. Uh, hieroglyphics and uh, Egyptian mythology embedded in the stuff we've talked about tonight. And I'm just not touching on it. Well, that's why it takes all of us putting our heads together because no one can be expert on all these things at once. That detail of the bitter sea, Miriam, and possibly connecting that to the daughter slash wife uh, consort of Menu, uh, that her name was her name is Ida. She's born of the sour milk thrown in the sea, like Aphrodite. But oh, her, wow. name's, her name's Ida, which is the name of the mother of the Greek, the Cretan king Minos. And Minos is basically Menu in terms yeah. of th- thematically. And right, yeah. I- Ida is the mountain right. where where Zeus is hidden from Kronos. So another like the the mountain is the mother. You go into Hinduism, there's tons of that. Like. Uh, sacred mountains throughout India where a goddess is said to actually physically dwell or is the mountain. So anyway, then you see that all the way over in Crete for the ancient Greeks where they have Mount Ida, but that's also the name of the the one who gave birth to their progenitor king, Minos. It's like this is the same system. (laughs) This is the same system in way vastly different parts of the world that are... maybe much more connected than we thought. Yeah, and I, I really do think, and I think the thing that, that unifies is the constellations and also trade. It's probably a lot of trade going on. You yeah. know, there's, there's a book called The Sacred Bonds of Commerce, and uh, s- s- trade can do some magical things. And remember, the only way to navigate is using the stars. So they're not just, I mean, they're, they're 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 sacred maps. They're not just maps. They're sacred maps, you know. And we've turned them into just, you know, just yarns. These are all those old people from long ago told these silly little yarns while they're staring standing in the field. And they're way more important than that. And uh John Lundball, I I really I'm so glad you guys are going to do an episode together sometime in the future because he can speak so eloquently about that. Um, you know the so, concept of the memory palace? No. So this was like particularly uh, used amongst the Druids who they didn't write things down. And I think in an older version of the system, like you're talking about Lundval and the oral right. tradition, I think that there is a point in time where writing things down was seen as more like a the the task of the menials that yeah, it, yeah. you were you were unintelligent or unenlightened if you needed something externalized in order to be able to remember it or know it so in a sense what you're describing with like commerce and, and navigation all being tied to the same system of priesthood yeah. and astrotheology yeah. is that the star like the sky itself it constitutes what you would consider a memory palace, which is this technique that is still it's usable today, even where you create like a you you associate a physical location that, you know, by heart or have a, a, a clear memory of like you could do it with your own home and you put things that you want to remember in spots of your home in your mind. And so this is a technique for memorizing huge quantities of information that can be 
used pretty much indefinitely with vast amounts of retention possible, which we've totally lost the power of memory in modern age because of all this externalized and digitized and, and written information. But like there's, there's conceivably no limit to what you could remember if you had the tech tactics and techniques for it. So I think that that's probably where this system was like coming from was to project a type of shared memory palace where everyone that was initiated into it would have access to the entire repository of human knowledge up to that point. Yeah, that, yeah I call I would refer to it as a mnemonic device, but exactly that. You you I didn't I never heard of the term uh, memory palace, but that's a great it's a great analogy because you would have a repository of human history, of sacred human history. Once you learned it, you know, well, I'm kind of doing wordplay with I'm kind of, I think palace has got a lot of wordplay to it, especially with memory, because yeah. palace is like a, obviously like a cathedral or a, a, a structure, a building. But palace is one of the epithets of Minerva or Athena, and it's said to refer to wisdom, but it's also phonetically pule or pulis and in lots of languages is talking about gates. So it's like the gateway to wisdom. To It's like the gateway to the structure of wisdom is what this system is, in a yeah. sense. I think yeah. Ophiuchus has a lot to do with that, too, in terms of constellations. I wonder if you've ever done much examination into ancient depictions of that part of the sky the uh what is modern known as the serpent bearer yeah afiukas yeah i i have not i've seen uh, iconography of afiukas in um uh pre-literate sumerian i can't remember if it was a pot or but i've seen the, ex- the exact figure it's got to be afiukas it's got to be the serpent bearer that eventually shows up in the greek world the Greco-Roman world, and, and it's in free literate Samaria. I mean, it's astonishing. Um, I, and so, you know what else shows up? The the, cycl- the Cyclops. You also hmm. see it in Mesopotamia. Um, so yeah, there's there's again, there's a lot. There's so much embedded in it, and it just makes you wonder. Um, just when writing. How did writing change that to a degree? Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, um, I, I know that the the fact that the Akkadian speak, speakers adopt cuneiform to write their language and preserve Sumerian as a sacred language. So th- they're automatically going to start seeing this kind of uh, these magical puns, these these revered puns, inviolable puns. And I'm wondering if it, when it went back into oral tradition, when it was just oral, did you have that same connection? I don't see why not. Do you see a reason why they wouldn't? I I definitely see the connection. I also think it's interesting how gods of eloquence become gods of writing. And mm. like, uh, oh, yeah, you know, I'm thinking of like the the Phoenician what they call the Phoenician Hercules, Agamios, who is cognate with the uh, uh, Agam of the Irish, one of the most early forms of writing. Uh, <laughs> uh, Agamios, yeah. who had golden chains from his mouth to the ears of his adherents and followers. Uh, there's 
definitely something about that transition from eloquence, aka speech, into writing. And then some of the gods actually kind of blur the line like Mercury, Hermes. And they're really all the same guy when you get dig into the symbolism. And when you're showing the Lumashi in that area of the sky where the Savior is born, there's, I don't remember which logogram it was, but one of them had like a bunch of meanings that I would attribute to the the gods of eloquence and writing <laughs> all wrapped up in it. So I could see that the savior deity or preserver deity is also correspondent to those concepts based on at least the, the Babylonian version of this system. Yeah. I, there's gotta be something to it. There's definitely gotta be something to it. Um, but yeah, I just, I wish I had more acumen with, like I said, like, you know, like Latin and hieroglyphics, I, I really don't tackle at all. Well, we'll find some ways to put our heads together okay. and, and maybe turn your research into something new that branches into other fields. I, I think we should just be in touch on that. But I've kept you for quite a while. Your presentation was yeah. awesome. You can wrap it up from here. I just want to wish everybody happy holidays. If you have mm -hmm. closing thoughts you want to add on to this talk, definitely hit us with it. Yeah, I just want to say, you know, this is the rebirth of the year. So happy Christmas, Merry Christmas, uh, Hanukkah, Solstice, uh, whatever celebration you do at this time of the year, it's the rebirth of the year, which is probably why Jesus' birthday was December 25th, the rebirth of the year. Yeah, and also all of these other saviors born at a similar time, born of a virgin, <laughs> you know, yeah. maybe not always in a cave. If it's Krishna, he's born on December 25th in a prison. If it's Horus, he's born in a cave, I think. Uh, Zeus in a cave, et cetera, et cetera. But this does seem to be like, for whatever reason, I, I mean, not for whatever reason, it's obvious. It's the solstice of the winter. So from this yeah. point, it's it's being reborn because it died. Yeah. So yeah. it's a turn the sun. Got to turn the sun. <laughs> got to. So yeah. do it, do your part out there, people. Turn the sun so that we yes. get another year. I, yep. I want to keep going. This is a fun yeah. ride. I'll leave it. I'll leave you with this. The Hopi believe that as long as one person continues to pray and and uh, pray in the old traditions and and pray for the the unity of the world, that it'll keep in balance. One person. That's all it takes. Wow. That that uh, definitely speaks to the the connection we all share to the source and singularity of life. Yeah. Love that. Yeah. Thank you all so much. It's a pleasure being on Chance and Interverse. Uh, uh, viewers, thank you so much for having me. We'll do it again. Thanks, John. Okay, you take care. See you, Chance.